now I'm fighting this cat. Corruption for the name corruption. Name Bivol. I'll tell you about it. Yeah. No, we do need to watch a match together because I want to know your analysis of the fight. So Terrence Crawford. Really, I was watching a Terrence Crawford match. He's really good. So he, he's extraordinary. Um, I'm going to tell you about boxing. The whole boxing thing these days. And um, how the drug cartels and the Las Vegas betting people have distorted boxing. That's the story. But, uh, I, I would say it's, it's, it's deeper than deep, man. <laughs> started um we're you know a little late <laughs> a lot of rain outside a lot of wind and i guess when we get into this space it's such a warm space seeing all our friends and comrades after a week being separated <laughs> i mean it's Twenty four hours. Yeah. Twenty four hours is too long. <laughs> and um, well, I guess we should go ahead. We're going to um, try to get past the bulk of the introduction of Hegel's Science of Logic. Uh, but first, um, just a few things on the current world crisis brought on by uh, now what is very, very apparent, the U.S. war with Russia. Mm -hmm. And it is a U.S. war. And the entire West has signed on to it without regard to the um, political and social and economic impact that this war will have upon European societies. Uh, the economies will collapse. Um, the political systems will be thrown into crisis. And of course, the hegemon or the used to be hegemon the United States mm -hmm. will not escape the backlash of this tremendous crisis. This is a European war, first with Russia. And it's, it's just to say that, I mean, you know, I don't think there are many people who would have imagined this a few years ago, 30 years ago, 
<coughs> a European war with Russia, not Germany, uh, not a single nation, but Europe as a whole, galvanized and led by the United States and using the Ukrainian people as cannon fodder. Mm -hmm. um, how this will end, it is difficult to predict, but uh, we have to prepare ourselves now for a very prolonged uh, battle. Uh, and it is, from the standpoint of the American people, a struggle against war and against the war makers. And that's why we have to say, have to acknowledge this fact, and it's a very positive and important fact, that the American people are today more anti-war than they were at the height of the anti-Vietnam War movement. Isn't that extraordinary? An extraordinarily positive situation, given all that um, we've been told over the last couple of years about how racist, amen, about how racist uh, Americans are, how the Trump movement. How um, how this identity politics linked to the uh, Democratic Party and the main centers of the elite, the professional managerial class, uh, which is a kind way of talking about the ruling class and its uh, various, uh, what would you say, various tentacles and institutions and uh, literally the cadre of the ruling class. Um, Actually, this profound split, and it is a class division, or one could put it a split between the majority of the people and the rulers of the country, which you know again brings to the fore this question of a crisis of legitimacy. And this war combined with inflation, combined with what will be a recession a recession and inflation are, in, are, are unusual events. They don't, things don't happen that way generally. You know, a recession or depression ends or, you know, takes the, the wind out of the sails of inflation. That just, I mean, even, you know, forgive me, I don't want to talk too much about this, but, even you take the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank. Oh, now we're gonna fight inflation. Well, how do you fight inflation? By slowing the economy down. 
So they're going to raise interest rates, and that's what that's about. But here is the problem that you know, bringing inflation down, quote unquote, and creating a recessionary situation, as they see it, is not going to end inflation. So you're going to have a recession and inflation, what they call stagflation. This is going to hit the masses of people and the working class in ways that they've not or we've not been hit before. In a lot of ways, for the ruling class, it is the worst of all possible situations. But for the working class, it is the worst possible situation. And this inflation is raging, is raging. And especially for things like food and rent and gas and electricity, just, I mean, at the, the immiseration of working people, this is huge and very dangerous. But the American people are in a different political space than I've ever seen. And that is a space of rebellion and anger. And they can call all of these people who are voting against the quote liberals and the Democrats as ultra right wingers and fascists, they can keep keep that narrative going to the to the cows come home. It's not going to change anything. People spontaneously are looking for ways to defend themselves against a predatory war uh, uh, intended a war making uh, ruling class. Um, I don't think, and this is a sobering recognition for us, that the ruling class of the United States has ever faced a crisis like this, a crisis of not even during the Great Depression. I could be wrong, but I don't think even during the Great Depression did the ruling class face a crisis of rule where the people don't trust them, the people don't like them, the people don't want to hear what they're saying, you know? They could, uh, they usually had, and, they, and this is part of why they promoted white supremacy to create a political rear base. That, you know, during the war in Vietnam, they could say to white workers, well, look, you got jobs. The economy is still doing good and you're still white. You know what I'm saying? That narrative doesn't work today. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't work. But uh, so they keep talking about nuclear war as though it's coming from Putin. It is vague, not just in this situation, but going back. It was they who always threatened to use nuclear weapons, used them in Japan, threatened to use them against the Chinese in Korea. <clears throat> we can't forget that. They threatened to use them in Vietnam. You know, threatened to use. The Vietnamese didn't have nuclear weapons. 
The Chinese didn't have nuclear weapons. The Koreans didn't have nuclear weapons. They threatened it. You know, and now they're doing the same thing and trying to say that it is Putin. Putin's words were response to the US who had, you know, I mean, had flown uh, uh, bombers with nuclear weapons on them close to the uh, Russian borders. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I mean, it, so let's, let, let's keep our eyes on this. Everything we do uh, has to be viewed from the standpoint of this, I mean, re really world crisis. Now we know that the vast majority of humanity does not agree with the United States and Europe. The vast majority of them, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, China, you know, most of Africa, but they persist. So uh, does anybody want to say, Joe, you want to say anything? Um, <clears throat> well, like you're saying, uh, again, I mean, uh, we can't underestimate the significance of the, the period we're in, mm -hmm. the different levels of crisis facing the ruling elite and the kinds of uh, ideological warfare that's happening as well. I think increasingly, uh, as much as they're trying to wage ideological warfare abroad, they're also trying to wage ideological warfare at home. Mm -hmm. And um, in the context of what you're saying, I think part of the significance, as we've been, as we've been saying in preschool, is with this populist mm -hmm. awakening, uh, mm -hmm. especially, I mean, it, it generally among the working class, but especially among the white workers, and just some of the recent um, stuff that's been happening in, with the midterm elections. I was just reading, I mean, of course, we've been talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene, yes. Madison Cawthorn, and now I think there's some case to try to disqualify Marjorie Taylor Greene from running for office again. And, uh, but in, in Ohio, there is a primary election and this guy, J.D. Vance, he campaigned on a platform against uh, endless wars. And he particularly, I think, called out the uh, situation in Ukraine and said that we shouldn't have endless war in Ukraine. And he, he tied that with um, the struggle against deindustrialization in Ohio and drugs mm -hmm. in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And obviously there are also uh, contradictions uh, in some of what he's saying, he's also critical of China and so on. But nonetheless, it shows in that social base, the kind of, it's more evidence what we're saying that uh, among the population in places like Ohio that the elite have written off, you know, and the elite and sadly a lot of the left also, they go nothing progressive or radical to come out of Ohio. But in places like Ohio, places like Pittsburgh, obviously Philadelphia, among other places, I think this consciousness is growing. And I totally agree with you. And as we've said, also in preschool, this may not look like the 1960s peace movement, or at least what we imagine today, the 1960s peace movement. Lee could speak better about what it actually looks like. I can speak better. About <laughs> yeah, yeah. But certainly, uh, this is, uh, and you know, the thing is, the the liberal media you can't rely on them to give approval to what is actually progressive like they're going to paint it everything as people are fascist people are racist people are russian agents <laughs> but you have to you have to reject that and say no we're going to work towards an uh independent uh analysis 
And uh, certainly the people, as you were saying, the people of the world are waking up to this fact. And uh, this is the question before uh, the people of the United States. And uh, certainly this administration, I don't think we've ever seen a crisis so uh, an administration in this way. I don't even know if, if Watergate was like this or negative, you know, the worst periods where within within barely a year, you know, this administration is in such a serious crisis. And, and I guess we'll probably talk about the situation with the Roe v. Wade of the Supreme Court. Well, well, why won't you talk about it? Just to start it off, you know, uh, as, as I think uh, everyone has probably seen a few days ago, there was a leak, quote unquote, from the Supreme Court to the to the mainstream media that of a of a draft ruling which indicates that the Supreme Court justices I think it indicates that a majority of them are considering uh, overturning the Roe versus Wade decision from the 60s which the original decision Roe versus Wade said that the uh, the right to an abortion is a constitutional right in the U.S. Constitution mm -hmm. therefore no state can make any law uh, abrogating that right. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was indicating that based on some case they're hearing now, they're considering overturning that precedent according to this leak. And as soon as this leak comes out, and this leak, I don't think it's ever happened before that anything has ever leaked out of the Supreme Court in this way. As soon as this leak comes out, not even five minutes after it's on TV, there are, you know, protests and signs the Supreme Court. They're protesting in every big city for reproductive rights. And it's all very convenient time with the midterm <laughs> elections coming up, as we were saying, with the anger that people are having towards the elite, right? Because I think all the all the politics that I remember until 2016 was all what you know this what we call a culture wars, red state versus blue yes, state, right, right, right. abortion, gay marriage, you know, where it's pitting people against each other based on their geography, their religion, their cultural context, dividing people. Rest so that they don't unite over the things they have in common, the anger at not having a job, the anger at these endless wars. So I, I mean, in my view, this is kind of a manufactured uh, distraction. And uh, it's not even really that much about the about reproductive rights. Because again, it's this technical, legal, constitutional question. Uh, it has, it's not even, you know, so it's, it's, it's basically they're trying to revive this political football, it seems. Yeah. So no, I, I really wasn't saying anything. I just was wondering about it because I kept hearing stuff, but yeah, it wasn't yeah, clear yeah. to me like what was really going on. But it seemed like people were fussing over yeah, the issue yeah. of abortion. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did see some posters, but it just didn't seem. I didn't know it was a leak or something like right, that. Right. Say that again. I didn't know that it was a leak. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. that they have timed it with the midterms like that. Right. Oh, no question. No, it, I, I agree with you. Oh, oh go, go, Jerry. Well, well, one interesting detail is that the journalists that that reported the initial leak were not—they're not reporters who are usually associated with one the Supreme Court, but two with like any of like I don't know, like abortion stuff. They're national security reporters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're people who are most in touch with like the national security apparatus. Right. And so I think there's a lot of questions there about like why even were these reporters the ones who broke the story? Right. And how did they get the information right. who gave it to them? But it does, yeah, I think another part of it is that, you know, a lot of people in the media, I think they're trying to spin this as like, you know, abortion was one of the primary motivating factors for why people voted for Trump. 
when I think everyone knows that like Trump was, he doesn't even feel that strongly about abortion. And so they're trying to spin it as like, this is like the core motivating factor of like Trump's base when actually, yeah, again, it obscures the war question, which and how that motivated the, the Trump, the Trump voters during like the 2016 election. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are a lot of evangelicals who feel strongly about abortion, like that is true. But I think, yeah, it just feels so similar to like, yeah, the, the BLM, the George Floyd thing and how they're able to kind of use these, I don't know, these hot incidents to kind of galvanize people to vote. Because yeah, like I think everyone knows that the Democrats are screwed in the midterms. Um, like they're, I don't think that they've ever been worse off in preparation for the midterms. And so this is like, I think like a Hail Mary last ditch effort to try to get some, some leeway in, or some like ground on the midterms, which otherwise it would be total, like a total like red wave. It's been funny because this week, so my, I work for a healthcare union. And so we represent healthcare workers and we had to hold a bunch of emergency meetings about the leak. And the point of the meetings was to basically organize all these like workers across the state of Pennsylvania who are leaning towards red and literally make, who are leaning towards voting Republican, despite the fact that my union supports like pure, not just Democrat, not just like establishment Democrats, but like quote unquote progressives. And the, like the point of the meetings was to like galvanize people around like, oh, but they're taking away your rights, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And like, I was just watching all these people's faces and they were just blinking and they were like, so what? Like, so are we gonna get a raise or what? <laughs> like, they were like, yeah, they were just like, so are we going on strike or what? <laughs> like, and it was it's also because, I mean, just from a, like the standpoint of my union, yeah. like political participation is at all time low. Um, like the point of every year is an election season where you're trying to turn out the whole strategy of like unions nowadays is like let's turn out this many people to like mm -hmm. volunteer for these candidates who people don't even know who like they probably will not vote for and mm -hmm. it's been the participation like internal talks is just how low it's been and I, I do think it was kind of interesting like I knew right away that the week I feel like was supposed to coincide with the election mm -hmm. um Especially even a lot of primaries, mm -hmm. right, a lot right, of primary right. elections primaries actually people are very contested. Yeah, yeah, there are many contested candidates, um, and yeah, it's just interesting. And people are not concerned. Like it didn't affect them at all. And actually, most of the people I was talking to, there's there's a huge divide on the religion, the religious aspect of it too. Most of the members in Pennsylvania are religious. Like they actually don't like even if you want to make it a culture thing. Like they not only are pro-life, but they also don't like the feeling that they're being seen as backwards for right. being religious. Oh, and most yeah. of the staff were like, there's a huge swath of staff at my union who are college educated, mm -hmm. represent a certain, you know, professional class. Mm -hmm. They like they they do talk about religious as like a backwards thing on grounds mm -hmm. of LGBT rights, on grounds of like things like that. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of even interesting to view. This week was very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, in my union. Okay. Uh, um, so in 2016, when um, Bernie Sanders was running against Hillary Clinton, he didn't get the endorsement of Planned Parenthood. And I remember him being interviewed 
And they said, well, why didn't you get that? And he said, well, you know, they're part of the establishment. And then that was taken like Bernie Sanders is against abortion. Yeah. Whereas really he was saying, well, of course, this is like part of the Democratic Party. And so they kind of use, you know, the Democratic Party identifies itself with the rights. And so they said, well, if you don't vote us, vote for us, you're not going to get it. And it's still, even with Roe v. Wade, people are still blocked from abortions because they still cost things, right? I mean, it's middle class people, it's not working class people are able to afford that in that sense. And, um, you know, Roe v. Wade was passed by a conservative court. Yeah. It was not a liberal court, it was a conservative court. And not only that, like, as you were bringing up earlier, um, you know, the judicial branch is like the way in which the state micromanages things because right. they put it in the courts right. then, right. as opposed to the real way in which you would enshrine it would be legislative. Right. And so they just kind of like put it there and say, mm -hmm. like, it really is a gamble. They tried Ukraine, Russia, that didn't work out at all for the Biden administration. 26% of American city economy is good right now. 26%. So it's like, okay, basically. Like 75 are like, no, this is crap. This is awful. And so they're just trying everything they possibly can. And I was thinking, actually, I was reading, you know, Alexandra Kolmbach. She was a Bolshevik. She was a Bolshevik in the Russian Revolution. She was talking about the decriminalization of abortion after the October Revolution, the Russian Revolution. And she said, we decriminalize it because people are going to try to do it anyways. Like it's one of the oldest things. And so we provide the services, but we don't turn it into a cultural thing. Right. Meaning we don't turn it into like, it's good. You know, this stuff, yeah. like the sure, like it's good to get an abortion right. or something like that. Right. Because historically the working class knows who the abortion is aimed at. It's aimed at them, right. really. Like there used to be the Chartists had this thing about Malthusianism. Like, oh, they're promoting abortion amongst us, not the wealthy class in this sense. And so she says, we provide the services, but ultimately the goal would be to overcome the need for it, right? That children could be raised, you know, and that someone wouldn't have to make that terrible decision in that sense of, I just can't even afford to raise my child or something like that, or give them the life in that sense. So I don't know, it becomes this, you know, the Democratic Party, I always feel like it's like, they are almost putting a gun to your head, like vote for us or the worst thing's gonna happen kind of thing. And so they're now trying that right now. Yeah, I mean, to add to what Danny was saying, I mean, one, obviously, um, there's a whole history of uh, racism and eugenics with uh, abortion. But also, yeah, I mean, this, it seems like the ruling class purposely made this into uh, this political football, even back with Roe v. Wade, because if, I mean, the conservatives have a point, I think, when they say this was legislating from the bench, mm -hmm. because the role of the judiciary is to just interpret the laws mm -hmm. and the Constitution, this, they like, found a new idea of the Constitution where they're like, oh, this due process, 14th Amendment, it was actually about abortion. And then if that was in the 60s and the Democrats controlled Congress so many times and never passed a law legalizing it on a national level. And secondly, from what I understand, anyone, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, even, even if the court does overturn Roe v. v. Wade, it doesn't ban abortion. It just gives states the right to yeah. make their own laws or localities to make their own laws. And uh, right, right. And then, you know, I was reading some commentary that was saying, I mean, you know, it's a complicated issue, right? I mean, there are um, some countries, even some countries that are, were, are socialists that have more conservative perspectives on this. Like I was reading Nicaragua, which is ruled by socialist party for the past like 10, 20 years, but abort you know, they have stricter laws on abortion because of the Catholic influence, religious influence. And the same with many countries around, I mean, you know, people have adapted it to their own cultural values. Yeah. And uh, this is an important point, I think, that they, that even progressive societies, 
didn't celebrate like abortion as a positive yeah. thing. Cause, cause you know, honestly, one of the things that really shocked me about the DSA is that they have an event called bowling for abortion where it's like they're celebrating abortion they're like let's go bowling for they, they would do bowling uh events to raise money for like Planned Parenthood and stuff they call it bowling for abortion and so it's just like an extreme culture sure everybody understands what bowling is <laughs> you know 10 pin ball it's like a bowling it's like a game yeah everybody knows that <laughs> South Asia, we call you cricket. You call it oh, bowling. Cricket, oh. <laughs> 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 it bowling. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, but it's it's a horrible thing. It's horrible. No DSA, DSA. Democratic Socialist of America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, I think that we are in a situation. You talk about well, Ukraine didn't work. This is not going to work because the economy is what the masses and the working class are really interested in right. and elites be they the woke elites that have taken over the staffs of so many unions you know or the elites in universities or other places in the newspapers in the media um, they uh, cannot convince the majority of working people that uh, uh, you know, overturning, when I put quotes, overturning Roe v. Wade is more important than they're looking at double digit, digit inflation when they go to buy food. And it is, it's in the high teens. It is in the high teens. I don't know how many you go shopping for food, but it's terrible. And it's going to affect energy costs, of course, gas already, the masses of people will suffer and they know it. And this is another factor in all of this that, and I, I, I learned a lot of this from Emily, from her union and her experience, that um, working people are very aware mm -hmm. of what the stakes are at this moment. Mm -hmm. They're anti-war, they want something to be done about the economy. They're less racist than they were 50 years ago, which kind of uh, supports Martin Luther King's notion. Uh, and I hope, uh, I hope Joe writes his dissertation on this. <laughs> I'm uh, lobbying him. <laughs> <laughs> Because people don't know what happened in the quote post civil rights moment. It was not a moment of retreat. And it was not, you know, just like a platypus with black power and you know, that's a that's a distortion. The civil rights movement did not abandon the struggle for civil rights, but just took it to the next level of the fight for peace. Mm -hmm. That you can't advance the fight against war. Uh, or you can't advance the fight against racism and the rights of the oppressed without advancing the struggle against war. And this is kind of the moment we're in now, where as the American people, and you, you know, I get this from Magna talking to me, you look, we look at this in increments, you know, 
quantitative change. It's not yet the big qualitative change, but you look at these quantitative changes in the behavior and thought patterns of those who the ruling class expect to be, quote, racist. You know, it's okay if, if white folk are racist, quote, unquote, but just as long as we, the ruling class, control them. But if they're, quote, racist and against the ruling class, then that's really bad. And especially now, if they're anti-war, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenally positive situation. And this, I think, it's, it's that tradition of the third American revolution, this black freedom movement. And it is the third, it is the third. That's uh, Nadir okay, the, yeah. from Germany. Mm -hmm. Remember he talked about two and I said, I so agree, agreed with him, but I said, I would just add that third one. And um, it's enduring impact upon the souls of this nation. We have yet developed the tools to fully measure the comprehensive shift in this nation as a result of that movement. Um, but Europe didn't have that third revolution. Mm -hmm like we did, we are so indebted to those great people, the Diane Nashes, the James Lawsons, uh, you know, of course, the Martin Luther Kings, the Coretta Scott Kings, and all of these people, our debt to them is immeasurable. And the nation's debt, the world's debt to them. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. To create an environment a nation, the greatest imperialist nation of all time, mm -hmm. where the population is against war. Yeah. Against war. Oh, go, go, go ahead. Oh, yeah. yes, oh, 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 I'm sorry, Derek. Oh, it, yeah. it wouldn't be so bad, like all the senior people that I've spent time with, my life journey from when I was in my 60s, mm -hmm. and still be around. I'm, I'm with the, the higher. Um, level of the older generation of like my sister, my old sister is 89. Oh, wow. And the thing about it is that for all of the difficulty, we all worked in hospitals. I worked in the hospital. Most of my family, we all worked in hospitals over 20 something years. Mm -hmm. I have. Mm -hmm. to, all of us have worked in. Mm -hmm. But the thing about all the difficulty is people that don't never had um, um, their social security. From, from their earnings to have a level, so they can have a level to at least say, I don't, I'm not fleeced of everything that I, I that I have, but it's harder for the seniors that don't have all these comprehensive um, things to, to apply for all these programs to get your phone done or get you some, some, some subsidy. They can't get the subsidy because they can't get through the system right. when you go to put this information in. Mm -hmm. And the only reason why I, because I was a clerical student, that's the only reason why I can get through. I was, I, they, they surprised I even came back in to say, Mr. Gay, you, you got to take your provider now because they penalized me for not being in the healthcare system because I worked in the healthcare field. But the thing about, they're they, they going to penalize you 
Now, I couldn't be the only person. Some people just don't go to doctors or do certain things at all, but they can't even apply because they don't even know how to go on the phone to pull all this stuff up on the computer. Yeah, that's right. And then they got some, I'm just mentioning how crucial this is when you see, when I see seniors in the market with me and what that looks like, and you know they struggle. They don't have no food stamp card, all this stuff, because they cut off. So they cut off, like, how they going to live? That's right. How they going to live? That's right. And, they, and they're not making it easier. They have made it twice as hard. Mm -hmm. Not They they say they're going to give it to you. How are they going to give it to you? They can't apply for it. Mm -hmm. They cannot apply mm -hmm. for it. So, I'm, so, I, so, I, so mm -hmm. I go to the senior center when I can go there because for the Zoom, that's one thing. But to see the other seniors and, and be with them, you hear the, you hear the stuff that they're going through. The housing, everything. So this is a crucial examination here of things that we all of y'all going through because it takes a lot of money every month. I could put my whole salary on this table if I wasn't didn't have what I had. I wouldn't be able to do where I'm living at. Not having no court, me. I'm keeping up with my friends because I, I came from a financial um, family that I had to have something that I worked an entire lifetime for. This not because it's my car. They can take the car if you ain't got no money. A lot of people don't have no money. But but it's just hard when reality check is that everybody's going through excruciating um, um, changes. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not just saying for my making an excruciating case for myself. I'm just talking about for people in general, and not to have nobody to come in besides your social worker. They cannot get into what you really live like if they don't live like you live mm -hmm. or live off the condition that you've been set with. If they have a salary that keeps them, you in the union, so you can speak to people that are right there, they kind of in their financial um, peers. But people that's not in those peers, they're in trouble. Right, the inflation's really gonna hit them because their, their, income is, their income is fixed, right? The sort of payments and stuff they're getting for social security, and yet if things get more expensive, yeah, they're stuck. Yeah. And I, I just want to say one more thing. Yesterday, I got a, a friend of mine, she lives in Germany. She come from Finland, but she lived in Germany for the last 30 something years. And, and yesterday was the first time that, since my brother passed, well, the first time she gave me like a general feeling like what was going on in Germany. And she's a teacher, a kindergarten teacher, and she's a professor in the London School of Medicine. And she worked in, she was in the Institute in Uganda. I know her for over, almost over 30 something years. And she from Finland, but I, and, but the thing about it is that she gave the when she's writing and we just writing these old and she's let me just say well they're they not really treating the people from Libya and I met a lot of Turkish people because my brother lived there Turkish people that have, have come there and then people have come there from the Iraq War and then all these different regions that she wrote on my email yesterday because I knew because I've been there but and she said she said the people um, from the war the recent war they're getting the uh, places to live more than the people from um, Libya or Egypt that come to Germany to live there, the final place to live. They see just told me that yesterday. Yeah, like they already, y'all yeah. can stay here, but you're not getting, no, y'all not getting the preference that they're giving, you know, like the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians, yeah. Yep. So go ahead, Magna, and then I'll keep it. Oh, no, no. Okay, Carlos. Um, this is all, reminding me of King's speech of Beyond Vietnam, mm -hmm. where he was talking about how the advances that they had made for Black people in America were being taken away as the country was moving towards war with Vietnam. Like just in terms of building the country, like all, like just the money that was going towards these programs 
were diverted towards war instead. And I think it's the same thing that we're seeing today as well, which is that you see America and it's the people are suffering, but then suddenly you'll hear from Biden like, there's billions of dollars of money that is just going to Ukraine. But then that those billions of dollars are just used to destroy a country where the people aren't getting any better. Um, and that's really insulting actually to both, I mean, the people of the US and also of Ukraine and Russia, um, but also of the world. Um, and I think that's also where it speaks to how you find unexpected alliances right. with like, for example, like, and this is, all, and I specifically, um, I think people have mentioned different individuals, but then even Tucker, Tucker as well, where he talks about how, like, this money is just appearing for, um, for Ukraine, but we don't spend even, I, mean, I think there's contradictions in there, but he was saying how the packages that are sent to Ukraine, they're double the amount, for example, that we spend on our borders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was saying, actually, why is it that our ruling class is essentially conducting this brinksmanship with Russia, where um, like why, if we actually cared for the people of Ukraine, aren't we, aren't we gonna try to find a solution um, so that the people aren't constantly in war? Um, and that this idea of nuclear war mm -hmm. is not something to be played with. Nope. And so that's where we're finding these unlikely alliances with, yeah, like uh, with people like Tucker who are speaking against war and also speaking for the livelihoods of individual people. Um, I think, I forget what news outlet um, this was, but there was this whole piece on like three part series on Tucker and how, <laughs> and how Tucker had, had risen essentially. Um, and that he was essentially, uh, he was the, uh, was it called the successor to Trump oh, yeah. in stoking white fear? Mm -hmm. uh, but but it was an interest, a very interesting article because um, the whole thing was saying how Tucker had manipulated white people or all this stuff. But actually, the truth is that he's speaking to reality of people in this country. Um, and even with the primary elections, like there was this whole thing as well of like Trump and whoever Trump endorses has um, a, ba a popular base in which they can um, speak for. And so this is like includes J.D. Vance. I believe, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah Trump had endorsed J.D. Vance. Uh, but it's, it's an extremely sad time, but also a pivotal movement as well. Extremely sad time, anxious. I feel anxiety, you know, just a small thing. Because one, you could see light at the end of the tunnel but also you can see some darkness too. Mm -hmm. It could go either way. Mm -hmm. oh, go ahead, Jerry. Well, just the, 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 the hit piece from the New York Times on Tucker, <laughs> um, I was hearing interesting commentary that like 10, maybe 15 years ago, no public media figure would have been, that any public like figure, like someone on the level of Tucker, anyone in like the major news outlets, they would have been scared to mm -hmm. ever be the target of a hit piece like that mm -hmm. from the New York Times, mm -hmm. especially the New York Times. Mm -hmm. But you see, when when the when the when the Times ran that piece on him, he like posted a picture on Twitter, like laughing with like <laughs> the newspaper and stuff. Which it reflects the fact that 
no matter how hard they try, the legitimacy and the authority of these institutions is waning seriously, that it's falling amongst the people. And um, and yeah, I think there, I think people in the free school have also been, you know, sharing about like the Amazon labor union mm -hmm. movement and that guy Christian Smalls who's leading it and the fact that he went on Tucker to speak about this, I think, yeah, like, I think it does reflect like this change in, um, in a positive sense, the consciousness of the people. And, um, and yeah, I, I think, yeah, Tucker's an interesting case because yeah, Jahan had shared this video about like how the Democrats are taking us to war oh, yeah, and yeah. you know, how Russiagate and the, basically the loss like he was, I think he was kind of attributing this whole war effort against Russia um, in, in large part to the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. And um, and the fact that the elites, like the actual serious elites who, who really govern the country, um, that, that like psychological, but also like political blow to them mm -hmm. is what motivates their like, like their insane rage against Russia. But it's interesting, even this the notion of white, like white fear or white anxiety, like so much of it, like what that what they're trying to pin on to people like Trump and Tucker, so much of it is, is their own projection because they're it's it mostly reflects their own fear of the fact that they feel like you know, Russia, China, all these you know, the, the quote unquote revisionist powers are encroaching upon upon like Western, you know, the sort of like the their idea of like this sort of Pax Americana, the stable like Western liberal order that especially that was sort of cemented after the fall of the Soviet Union. And like that, it reflects their anxiety about that as opposed to, you know, the anxiety of like the working class. So, yeah. They call it white fear and white anxiety, mm -hmm. but what about the black people? Yeah. Yeah. They have the same fears <laughs> and anxiety. <laughs> um, you know, I guess in in some ways, this is what we call, you know, a, the attempt at regime stabilization. And um, but for the great mass of people, it is a moment of disambiguation. This is a word, disambiguity. You know, uh, the uh, where the ambiguities mm -hmm. of Nori, <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> a disam disambiguity, disambiguous moment, a moment of clarity, you could call it that, where the ambiguities uh, become kind of uh, unravel. What was ambiguous and uncertain for masses of people is now clear. And, and that's why, you know, Tucker Carlson is so refreshing, mm -hmm. not because you have to agree with him, but because he is open to discourse and discovering the truth, yeah. unlike what you get on the other stations. And now he, he is more popular, according to the ratings, among liberals, independents, yeah. conservatives, and everybody. People listen to him to get, you know, to frame discussions of things. And that's why that New York Times hit piece. Uh, after I saw the reporter interview, I said, I'm not gonna waste my time reading this. 
Um, but uh, go, go ahead, anybody else? Oh yeah, go, I'm sorry, Kayla. I mean, there's something briefly, but it feels like from the conversation we're talking about, like it always feels like there's a new emergency that happens when we go back to the Democrats, the Black Lives Matter, the abortion debate now, uh, Ukraine and Russia. It's always something new, like, okay, everything's gonna go terrible if you know, we don't go turn out in the midterm and vote. Right. Um, but even just like the fact that I, I've gotten a chance to catch up with old friends and also just talking to young people. I think I think there is like a very scary nihilism among a lot of young people now. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's like I'm really curious about where are people turning for hope in politics. And I think there is like this rise, and you know, a lot of young people see this sort of this lack of potential in both politics, they're resisting against that. But then anti woke politics at the same time isn't exactly, you know, creating something positive. The same nihilism is still there. It's just, you know, different now. Now that you're going into these things, you're still not, there still isn't a hope you have for the future. I think that's what's, like, there is a lot of hope we have now, but also a lot of, like, will that hope, like, you know, inspire young people to, like, go beyond, like, actually also believe that there is a future of life for, instead of almost being consigned and treating, and also following praise and nihilism that's so prevalent everywhere. I mean, it's so easy to become nihilistic now. We understand why. But then I think that fight for hope is so important now because if you don't see that hope, if you don't see the possibility, then like you're defeated. And this is one of the, I think, contradictions. If you compare now to, let us say, the time of the war in Vietnam, mm -hmm. young people were more anti establishment. Mm -hmm. Today, because of the um, nonprofits, because mm -hmm. Young people, it seems to me, I could be wrong, you'll tell me, are more hooked into media things, yeah. be it, you know, like the um, uh, mainstream media or social media, yeah. more so than older people. And older, when I say older, let's say 40 and up, mm -hmm. working class people mm -hmm. have said no. They're lying mm -hmm. to us, they lied, etc. I think with younger people, and I learned this from Platypus, uh, the Platypus Convention, a deep disappointment. Mm -hmm. Everything has failed. Mm -hmm. We had Occupy Wall Street, what happened to that? We had Black Lives, well, what happened to that? We had Biden, well, what happened to that? You know, uh, we had Obama, well, what happened to that? Everything has been a disappointment. And nothing has changed, except in for us. You know what I'm saying? You, you know, you know this. Uh, yeah, hold on. One. That song, this little light of mine. You know, <laughs> our little light, we let it shine. Keep saying the same thing and fighting for the truth. And somebody is going to say, at some time, that's right. I think our views are closer to the working class than they are to especially the uh, more highly educated elites. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll just stop, but I, I, for one, one last small point, which brings into question the role of elite universities and universities in general in brainwashing and uh, really creating a nihilistic, pessimistic mm -hmm. world outlook mm -hmm. for young people. Mm -hmm.
which creates real psychological problems for you. Uh, let, let me just call on Purba and then Megan and then, then Anna. Yeah, I was just thinking about uh, on this topic of young people feeling pessimistic. This is why the conversation we've been having on and off about art and culture is also so important. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I don't really think, I mean, art and cultural expression is supposed to be a mirror for society, but in an inviting manner that makes you want to participate mm -hmm. in, be, mm -hmm. you know, be a part of society, feel like you have a contribution to make. But if your art and culture is so garbage and it's just making uh, young people feel like the only thing they can do is escape or be extremely individualistic because there's no good anyway. Nobody's good. Everybody's like, you know, just out for themselves. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to aspire to. Where will that, you know, source of inspiration come from? And all these periods that we look up to, to study and, you know, learn from, they it's simultaneously with the struggle. They also had, they were producing great art and culture. Mm -hmm. It's it, it's a, it's a, it's a glue that holds together society, especially young people who require you know. Well, that's, that's remember what Musa said to you all. You know, Musa, my friend. You know, um, he said that you know in his coming up they had read Mao and Kim Il Sung and Ho Chi Minh. Remember, he told you he said we could pass a lot on to your generation. But the thing that has been most difficult, and we have not been successful in passing on, and that is the music. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a reason for that. But I think that was such an accurate uh, statement. Uh, go ahead, Meghna, and then, and then Anna, and then uh, Emilia. I feel one thing is just the fundamentally self-centered worldview that is a part of empire that just mm -hmm. young people today have like and a lot of the anger at the right is this feeling like why why aren't you validating my identity and my experience like even all the stuff with language my pronouns my mm -hmm. why don't you use my language and it's just uh i, I think that self-centeredness is also part because you can't see anybody else beyond you you can't see well, one thing I this last week I met um, Mike and Talbot, who's one of the daughters of Karen Talbot, and Cal yeah, and I, I met her when I was visiting California, and she, I mean, I was asking her about her mother. Um, I was also asking her about the peace movement, which she experienced as a child, because um, she was like, I don't know, I don't know some of the things they're talking about, but you know, I knew I saw it from a child's eyes, and she was saying that she went to a camp where. Uh, she she it was run by east germans uh mm -hmm. and it was like a peace camp for children they used mm -hmm. to learn the games of children from just, say, just for clarity uh -huh. she was living in helsinki yeah, yeah, yeah. with she her mother yeah. who worked for the world peace council mm -hmm. so she saw the global peace movement yes yeah i'm sorry I just yeah 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 mm -hmm. no she she was saying that she um one of the things she remembers doing was uh drawing pictures of the sun to send to pinochet <laughs> Because okay. like, and she's, they didn't know what exactly Pinochet was or what he was doing, but they sure. knew he was a bully and they knew he was hurting people. Yeah. So she said that doing that made me realize there were other people in the world who mattered and I could do something for them. Mm -hmm. And she's like, that still animates her life. And just what a difference peace mm -hmm. could make for the morale and just sense of self of young people, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, go ahead, Anna, and then uh, Camille. 
Oh yeah, I mean, just like going off of um, I think like same thing like as Caleb. I was actually talking um the past couple months to like some of the like friends in politics and activism, you know, like from Penn and like yeah, one of the really sad things is that like I remember a couple years ago, I like joined a lot of these groups and we were all like kind of like young students excited for I don't know like the Bernie movement or whatever it was, but um. Yeah, there was a lot of, I think, like energy and potential there. Now, like I came back to a lot of those same groups and the same people. Mm -hmm. And like, they're literally all like strung out with like mental illness and hard drugs. Wow, you have one with mental illness and hard drugs? Yeah, both of them. Wow. Like like some of them were like hospitalized so I couldn't talk to them. Wow. Um, and then like, then like I had this one friend and like- You say hard drugs, what hard drugs? What hard drugs? <laughs> Cocaine is like the softest of the heart. Oh, no, so no. I'm, I'm talking like Molly or you, they call it ecstasy, MDMA, you know, they got some of that. And then there, there's like, well, also the scary thing is that like, they just get stuff and like, you don't know what it's cut with. Yeah. So yeah. there's probably church. fentanyl on some of it. Right. There's right. so like, wow. and then, and the thing is, so, so I'm, I'm like, so like, what are you guys thinking politically? And then they're like, uh politically i don't know we're just like a social club and we do molly together like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. so the thing is is that like well actually so um there was this one group that had marianne williamson who ran for president in 2020 and she came to penn and um they so like i started asking some of them about like what they thought of marianne williamson because she I mean, I mean, she has some contradictions, but she was, I think she gave a very, um, yeah, 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 because yeah, Emily and Kathy um, went, and she gave, I think, like, a very, like, uplifting and inspiring message to young people. She was talking about her generation, she was talking about anti-war, and she was talking about, you know, like, this idea of, like, the new American revolution. Um, yeah, I was actually kind of impressed, and I was talking to, like, some, some, like, political people that I had who had also gone that I knew from a couple years ago and they had nothing to say wow they it just it just went over their heads they were like oh yeah they were like if you wanted to talk to Mary Melissa she's accepting any speaking engagement so like that'd be really good if you want to do it like <laughs> just something at that level um yeah well that's the thing with like I think this nihilism is that they I think they they know intuitively that like progressive politics, especially at elite universities, at you know any place with elite spaces, is that it's all an artifice. They know that it's they're being groomed for like the war agenda. They know yeah. that like everything is so abstracted that what what they talk about. But it's yeah. but the thing is, I think I don't know. It's tough because they can't even get outside themselves. Like yeah. like I felt yeah. I really felt like at a loss for the first time, and I was like I was like I want to like I didn't even know how to talk. To the like, I didn't know how to talk them out of it. I didn't know like, yeah. It was, <laughs> what you what you run into, uh, maybe nihilism is not the word that we want to use. Yeah. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. But it seems to me yeah. that wall of indifference, the indifference of of young people who have experienced disappointment, mm -hmm. and you know. And and really, what you what I would say you're also experiencing is a type of aging of the spirit, Ooh. where Ooh. Mm -hmm, where the spirit has lost its youthfulness, yeah. its mm -hmm. hopefulness, 
Again, King, there is no sky. Right. What happens when there is no sky, when you can't imagine? And so to, to further kill, you know, those, the, the sense of feeling, the sense yeah. of connectedness, you know, this thing of hard drugs. And I, this is, and when you say cocaine is the softest, you know, just so you'll know, you know, uh, back in my days, cocaine was viewed as a softer, even I would say a health food drug <laughs> compared to heroin, you know, you snorted it and rich people did it and hip people did it, but it, it is entry, but it is expensive. And therefore you look for cheaper right, versions right. of it, like crack. They went to crack. And um, so this, um, the wall of indifference, and I guess what is shocking to you is people who once cared about things don't care about anything anymore. At least they perform that. Right, right. You know, probably they want to care. And just one last point, the question of language. Mm -hmm. uh, people in universities, and I'm going to talk about Noam Chomsky in a minute when we get through this, but people in universities, uh, one of the things they do in the human and social sciences is don't teach you to think about the world, but give you a language to talk about the world. Right. You see what I'm saying? But then what happens when the language you, you've been given doesn't help you understand the world? So you, you see what I'm saying? Uh, and uh, well, anyway, let me just stop. We'll come back to that. But Emil and then Serafina. So, um... I think it's interesting to me because I actually had an opportunity to go to a movie. Speak up just a little bit. I had the opportunity to go to a movie with uh, Samir and Jacob this week. Uh, you know, went to see the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. Did you say the title one more time? It's called Everything Everywhere at All at Once. Okay. And it's sort of based around this um, Chinese American immigrant family who has bought a laundromat that's not doing well and they need to go to the IRS to try it you know, solve the situation as best they can. Um, so there were a lot of interesting things about it. I mean, it's also this parallel universe thing with the big no spoilers. No spoilers. Okay. No spoilers. Okay. Okay. I feel like I give away a lot. It's all live stream people. Well, interesting. So one of the other big problems or the uh, issues in in the film is that the daughter of the mother uh, yeah. has a. Uh, a girlfriend who I don't know if she identifies as not a woman or something along those lines, but she doesn't want to tell the grandfather who can't speak any English that, uh, you know, the mother doesn't want to tell the grandfather that this is happening because it's not traditional and he wouldn't understand. And mm -hmm. this big dynamic with the girl feels she's not accepted by the mother. And um, <laughs> eventually the mother comes around to the, the daughter's side and accepts and tells the grandfather this is the way it is and you have to deal with it. 
And the daughter, it's interesting how as issues in the beginning, the daughter can't even really speak Chinese. Her Chinese is terrible. She can't even really communicate with her grandfather. So there's no sense of the disrespect there. Like, like why, why shouldn't you have some reverence to your, your, uh, um, but it's really interesting because the end, like, moral of this story is essentially nothing matters. And um, so do whatever you want. And sort of presented in this quasi-optimistic way, like the mother finally accepts the daughter's lesbian trans relationship um, and distances herself from her, from her father. Um, but this is hopeful, this is optimistic. Because... I interpreted it differently. Like, I have a lot of you know, beautiful things about it. Well, I mean, choreography is very interesting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Give it to me, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, could you respond? Yes, please respond. I don't know. I mean, other people who have seen the movie should also chime in. I, I think, like, no, there definitely is. It, well, one, it's a very, um, it's a very, internet age movie and it's a movie that i think can only have happened with the age of like technology this kind of super fast you know kind of, like kind of peppering you with like lots of information all at once which is like basically also the title but <laughs> um, <laughs> but actually like i thought it was interesting because actually when because Nuri and I saw it, but we were talking about it, and um, there was actually less of the immigrant angst than I mm -hmm. thought there would be. Yeah. There was less of the young immigrant angst, yeah. you know, that, that like this whole thing of like, oh, my parents don't understand yeah, me, my grandparents don't understand me, they they're stop, backwards. they're all backwards. Mm -hmm. I just want to be American. I'm yeah, yeah. It's, actually, we felt like that there was less of that than what we'd expected because we we're very used to that being the kind of dominant narrative especially amongst these kind of asian american immigrant movies but interestingly the core theme that we were talking about and like yeah others can say but it was actually it wasn't like a revolutionary thing at all but like it was a kind of pushback against nihilism yeah because the daughter's whole thing is that she basically, I, yeah, sorry for the spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but basically, <laughs> well, the big, the big, you know, the big enemy, like the big villain in the movie turns out to be like what happens to a person when they become totally nihilistic, yeah. when they lose any sense of feeling that there's anything worthwhile in the world at all. And the movie is saying it's not saying yet, like yeah the, the value of life is struggling for like you know to transform the world or anything but it's saying that that there is value especially in family and having a sense of you know a sense of like i don't know like a sense of responsibility and of even any sense of social ties at all especially to family it's kind of anchored around this this idea of family um and yeah, I don't know. I actually, I didn't, yeah, I didn't get the sense that it was trying to say that there's no, that nothing is worthwhile or that you can do anything, but that, you know, like one, there is, yeah, there's generational differences for sure, but that, 
like, yeah, I don't know. It just didn't feel to me at least that it was trying to say like, oh, do whatever, like do whatever you want to do with life. Because in, in part it was saying like, if people, especially young people fall into this trap of thinking that nothing matters, then like, what, what do you do? Like there is no hope for society. And so it was trying to, in a small way, it felt like it was trying to reclaim some sense of, you know, people have an anchor, which is their community, which is their family members. And we can't lose sight of that. And, and it did it in its own weird way, but that was at least how, how it yeah, I feel like the like the premise of the movie is to throw you into all the chaos, which I feel like is the, one more time the premise one. of the movie is to sort of throw you into this oh, okay. chaos mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, suddenly you have the option or the opportunity to explore all these different lives, like you mm -hmm. basically can have it all. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's kind of like what our generation is also given, like that's what we're supposed to want, yeah, which is yeah, to like embrace yeah, yeah. the chaos of the internet. Like, mm -hmm. oh, there's so much like funny jokes, ha ha ha. But I feel like the mm -hmm. thing is, is that, yeah, like that chaos does not actually produce, I guess, like a structure or any sort of coherence to life. Right. And so I feel like the main character, she's given all of these gifts or all of these opportunities, mm -hmm. but really like the narrative structure is that she has to come to terms with her life and the choices that she's made in her own life. Um, because, yeah, I feel like also the, this really is just like talking about the whole plot, so it's a complete spoiler, I think. But, <laughs> but I feel like the, the thing is that the nihilism that the girl or like the daughter has is actually from experiencing all of these different worlds. Yes, yes. Like she sees all of it and she's a part of all of it at every single time. And so she basically loses like the thread of, I think, a life lived in order and trying to like, I guess yeah, the enemy something. is postmodernism. Yeah, like the enemy yeah. is actually like just chaos. Yeah. And I say this, I didn't watch the movie. I just read the Wikipedia plot. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it seems, I thought the enemy, the enemy is postmodernism. Yeah. The villain of the movie is the daughter who yeah. is educated in postmodernism. Yeah, and how it like severs you from all yeah. of these like familial ties, tradition, everything that actually makes a life like worth living. And so I feel like the, what I thought was like cool or actually kind of nice about the movie is that it is subtle. Like you have the option of, I think, interpreting it as like, oh, actually like, like we can do this or like, oh, this is so great. Like this is everything that I want. And so it fits into, I think the cultural landscape or like the milieu that we're brought up in. But at the same time, the message I think cuts against that and says, like you can do this, but what's actually the point? Yeah. The grounding heart of the movie is definitely, yeah, like the family. Yeah, yeah family is worth fighting for. Yeah. I thought like the message was that family today in the society, family is demonized. Yeah. yeah. Tradition and history is demonized. Mm -hmm. And I felt like the solution of the whole yeah. film was actually you have to fight for it. You have to keep it together. Right. But they were also saying it's kind of the older generation's fault for being homophobic. Oh, yeah, yeah. The last thing the mother says to the daughter is like, it's okay, we're together and you can do whatever you want, nothing really matters. Uh, yeah, that's of that, like the family's coming together, and you know, that, that was very true. Um, but it still felt like it was in this box of like very self-centered individual. Yeah, because I feel like the, the filmmakers are not like revolutionary. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's, art, it's art made for this time. Yeah. But, uh, but also, like, what is the time? Is it transitioning or not? So that's like yeah. the. Yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate all these comments. I, I definitely much more nihilistic in terms of. <laughs> 
I agree with it because I also watched the film. And I think I really appreciated just how sincere it was. I think I saw the ending statement as nothing matters is different because I think part of it was hearing the beginning where the daughter says it. It's like a very nihilistic way. It's like, oh yeah, nothing matters. So fuck everything. I'm just going to drink and be sad about myself. But when the mother says it, it feels like it comes from a place of like love. Like it's not nothing matters because you know everything is terrible. He just chooses to be depressed by himself. Just say that once again. Not the mother. Do that one more time. Well, I think when the mother says it, I almost saw it differently. I mean, I, I think it also feels like you know. Something my mom would say to me, like, mm -hmm. it's not nothing matters, and so that you know, you should just give up on everything. Mm -hmm. Like, nothing matters, and then, like, you have the freedom to do that love, that the freedom to really choose and like, go forward. So, mm -hmm. I thought that was. Yeah. What if I like so many just like, I love you forever, and like, the things that really don't matter, like, will yeah. cloud that? Because mm -hmm. I feel like the resolution okay. is the way, like, the mother fights and the father fights mm -hmm. in their own ways. And with the, when they fought for their daughter, they resolved their intermarital problems yeah. and they resolved yeah. the problem. The child. Yeah. The yeah. Yeah. And it's like the father had to take his own way. And I feel like it was a question of like masculinity or not. But then I also think like the mother had to like take on like, you know, strength, but also love in their own way that they met in the middle. But yeah. Wait, you saw the movie though. Oh, go ahead, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> I saw what I had a kind of question for everybody, which was off of what Serafina was saying, because I was basically wondering how people thought nihilism was perhaps um, related to the question of transition at this time. Mm -hmm. So like nihilism is ultimately like it's contradictory because to say nothing matters is actually to give a purpose to life. Yeah. To say nothing matters or giving a purpose. So it might be a sickness of the time, but it might be like a pregnant sickness. Meaning it was a question you raised earlier. Is it light at the end of the tunnel or is it darkness? Meaning how, what's the potential? What's the opportunity in the transition? So a pregnant sickness to yeah. quote my friend Nietzsche, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's why I was curious about what people thought about this room. Well, we, we, hold on, let me, let me let uh, Samir who saw the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to like, tell everyone to keep their mind open and like, you know, like platypus, it's an open question about the people. <laughs> because, you know, uh, I, I, we, the movie uh, inspired a lot of conversation immediately after we left it. So I think it's worth seeing, but also it was confusing. Like I didn't realize there was a biblical reference until we were talking about it after this alpha to versus omega or alpha to omega and then oh, it's the also the, alpha and the, the beginning and the end yeah yeah and i'm not sure you know what the meaning of that metaphor is or the meaning of the everything bagel or the meaning of the <laughs> 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 or, or the I think the 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 always the bad the conflict was not clear to me in in the movie, so the question is uh, open. But you know, from a uh, before evaluating the movie ideologically, uh, technically, it was a brilliant movie because. Um, the actress, I recognized her. I don't know her name, but I recognized her. Okay, thanks. Touch <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tiger and Dragon. And I recognized that the, the fighting choreography was not uh, Western style, it was in the style of uh, you know, Chinese. Yeah. Um, and um, 
Yeah, and also there was a scene where she was experiencing everything all at once, and um, it, they must have, to do that, they must have taken, you know, thousands of pictures and different, and um, so I, you know, I had a lot of respect for the technical brilliance, but it also, you know, means that, you know, the West is not producing culture and has to go and assimilate these other things, this, this cosmopolitan rootlessness. Um, so it's not really a movie rooted in um, a people's ideology, but it is something that did speak to a lot of people here. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, um, this, pro this issue where, uh, you know, Western civilization can't produce its own art, so it has to go seek out Chinese artists, or it has to go seek out Ukrainian artists or Middle Eastern artists, to present them in, um, you know, where, where's our presented museums and such, uh, <laughs> museums, Instagram? theaters, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> where it's curated, um, and it, it must, it must, it says something about the, the current time. Yeah. Okay. Well, I feel like what Danny was saying about like what direction is denialism mm -hmm. going to go? I feel like that was also kind of what the movie was sort of presenting, mm -hmm. which is that like there's the nihilism of I guess postmodern, like university educated elite. And then I guess I saw it as being distinct from I guess like the existential nihilism, where yeah, you have to interrogate and ask like what does all this mean? Like all of these structures, all of these assumptions that we take for granted, what does it mean and what role or what choice do I have in either upholding or shifting or like taking a role in transitioning? Um, from it. And so, yeah, I feel like the nihilism, does, like not, not nihilism as a general concept, I think does have that potential, but I feel like it's like, which way does it manifest in like thoughtlessness, like thoughtless nihilism of just like, I guess the feeling or like the spread outness or like a thinking nihilism mm -hmm. that's trying to interrogate and like find something. And also, <laughs> it's that I feel like if we talked about how art is propaganda, mm -hmm. I mean, we were reading the criteria for Negro art, but it's also like that, like if you leave people with nihilism, there is an inherent direction that mm -hmm. the ruling class forces just want mm -hmm. to paralyze them so that they can go their direction without the people even rising up and realizing mm -hmm. where things are taking them. But oh, no, no, please. But then you then realize like art, like of all kinds, like will, like they do have a certain meaning, even when they proclaim yes. to be meaningless. Yes. And so therefore we do have a very important task to say, um, like what is needed for this time is a certain art with a direction that is clear, that doesn't leave it, you know, as a deception mm -hmm. or like a trick. But really tells people clearly where, where, where things lie. Using a different measuring rod to talk about this movie. I guess so. I guess that's where we're trying to say, like, it's not perfect. Um, what would have been a little better would have been a little more clarity around. Um, even though the messages were sort of there put side by side, one has to almost make the choices super clear in this moment. Mm -hmm. I just want to clarify the words, the nihilistic, yeah. oh, yeah. uh, nihilistic yeah. expectation, right? Because <laughs> nobody don't know what the second coming is. Mm -hmm. In the Islamic world, oh. it's the hitting the Iman 
but in the, but they might say it's the messianic age in the Christian world. So those are two alpha and omega and the revelations in the Bible. I'm just putting the story how people they don't think the Islamic people in the world is looking at the meaning of their religious ending or the new religious beginning. And we don't use the messianic name of Messiah because we don't want to believe anything. Nobody is eternal, but the messianic age, the nihilistic movement, it's like it's the expectation. You don't know how that expected, they call in the Islamic world, they say the expected one or the expected one. So that whole hidden history in the Islamic world and the Christian world too, it's about sacred people in the end of time or, or from the beginning of the time, Alpha and the Maker. You can clarify it if you go and re-look re at what I'm saying, but it's just <laughs> something that's placed in the in our bosom or placed in what we what you spoke to believe. I had to come in here like I'm a I was a I'm a believer. I didn't I don't want to meet y'all without having my belief. My faith and my belief is that I'm sitting here trying to understand that we got to have this great patience about how we understand what we are here to be together with. I don't want to say I just met y'all by accident or that this was an accident that we communed together. This is this is a um this was I'm the I was a youth in my vitality, and I'm going to try to still exemplify what the youthful part of vitality means. Especially, we have new things that we have to do together, mm -hmm. you know, as brethren or brotherhood or sisterhood. Mm -hmm. You know, in any country you go, it's going to be it's going to drop in your lap. Mm -hmm. And that movie must have been like, wow, <laughs> you don't know what to expect. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, but if the real language of the novelistic thing is not to go have yourself. Don't outwit yourself. Try to have some sacred belief that y'all did go visit the temple, okay? Or that that was part of something that to understand. But y'all all we also come from the basis of being Church of the Advocate, and y'all visit the, the of these several different kind of churches. And this is a real experience to be able to say, "I'm glad I was with some students here that we can try to unravel what it feels like and don't be upset because what she just told me, I'm upset because." Students, they seem to be pushed out of the out of the curriculum of their whole life. Yeah, right. They don't even know why they here. They got parents. They was born to be here. Yeah. You know what I mean? It ain't no aborted mentality. You know what I'm saying? This is this is like wow. That's 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 a pain. The, when you go and, and students can't come to be who you you saw, they trying to find like I tried to find. If I lost students on this journey, yes, I have. He lost a lot of students too. People that we met to have relationship with. You're not trying to be here to, to escape, find an escape hatch. Mm -mm. That's yeah. right. Oh, go ahead. No, Jerry, no, uh, Jerry, Jerry, and then Seraphine. So, so one thing is that even like even before we started talking about the, the movie itself, but the discussion about nihilism. It made me excited to read Hegel today because oh, I was well, because I was I was trying, you know, I was trying to follow the assignment for this this week and to read that to read some of the the rest of the introductions. But the part where he talks about what actually is negation and the that there is always the fact that there I don't know if I'm correct that that there is a content. A negation means that it's not like a negative thing, but that there is like, I know, because this is something I was trying to be struggling with when we first introduced the concept, like the negation of the negation. But I think 
to bring it back to the question of the nihilism of you know the young people that Emma was talking to, mm -hmm. as opposed to I think this discussion of another kind of I don't know if it's like another kind of nihilism or just the fact that you know there is like what the movie I think reflects or represents is that there is like it opens up questions mm -hmm. and that there is a general questioning of like the world that we live in, the society, the values, um, and where our society is headed. Mm -hmm. I think those are, I guess, two different things in that on the one hand, if young people are being sort of instilled with this idea that there is no value, there is no meaning, like that in itself is not a true negation of the existing social order. That is merely an affirmation of its continued mm -hmm like existence because yeah. the society is that is the society yeah. telling you that yeah. there is yeah. nothing worth struggling for That's right. but on the other hand but family but see if yeah. i might just say if Some. i might just say but i'm not saying i'm saying that's what the movie is saying and i feel that to 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 see that as a positive as i feel that you all are doing is a very conservative uh, way of uh, a very conservative um, uh, thing. I'm sorry, yeah, let me just make what because if that is, then there is no sky to use mm -hmm. King's word. Mm -hmm. What do you imagine beyond my yeah, tradition? Yeah. You know, we come from. Um, we come from a tradition of strong families and we have to uphold our tradition. That to me seems too conservative, but I'll, I'll, yeah. I'm just suggesting that. I, I, guess, know that. What I, I guess what I was trusting was the, I think the movement or tendency, especially young people to be trapped into a worldview, which raises no questions at all in which there's no curiosity there's no actual questioning of things whereas i think my and it may be a conservative sort of understanding but I, what i appreciated about the movie is that it actually it doesn't just say like oh like family is the only solution yeah, yeah. or i mean like at, at least that was not my feeling out of it it's like i think it just rate the fact that it's pushing people to actually like ask serious questions about the world. I think it's not perfect. And like, I don't know if it's necessarily like everything that the people need in the society, but I think it's it's quite a, it's kind of like, does, does your worldview or like even the art that you're doing, does it just kind of lead you to a dead end? Or does it at least move you, start to move you somewhere that the you know this movie itself can't answer all those questions uh -huh. but at least it's moving you somewhere okay. at, at least and yeah that may be a conservative like like yeah. it's not like the best that we can do but I, that was i guess what i was trying to i guess contrast i think yeah. um yeah well, i thought that i mean the redeeming thing for me was love yeah was a big theme and how like the nihilism is because she does not feel loved and she even learns to love her enemy um, yeah. Who is this tax collector who's a monster? <laughs> <laughs> a monster in the other world, but in another. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. 
it is crazy. But in that sense, I thought, yeah, that's the Eastern spirituality. Yeah. yeah, there's even a scene at the at the climax where she puts an eye on her head, which is to represent the third eye. So maybe even that's a little too metaphysical. <laughs> you know, we have to be getting I mean, in an age where there's real politics. But um, well, I was just gonna say that Megan, when we first left, like the reason why I thought so much about the um the role of love was because of the father was so like such an anchor and like even reminding the mother how important love is yeah. even when you have all these choices like the grounding thing still has to be that you resolve yeah. your questions and hold your enemies as much as your 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 family is with love yeah yeah or something about love being a key aspect aspect of existence which is part of the nihilism is like you know that nihilism is a universe without love, without anything worth working or sacrificing for. But Nabila asked, um, say the name of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even I, I don't say it. I, 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 everything always. <laughs> right, right, right. It, yeah, I'll write it. But does anybody know the everything name? Everything, everywhere, all at once. Okay, everything, everywhere, all at once. She also, she also says that COVID is back and we should wear masks again. Um, but she also she also says Bernie movement, world environment, causes, etc. Um, Camille, maybe she meant Emil, is saying that the people are phased out to nothing in them. Yeah. So, I don't understand what the I think just saying how all these movements just don't lead anywhere. Bernie movement, world movement, causes etc. People are phased out to nothing ism. Yeah. Um, people are phased being the human is being phased out to nothingism. Yeah. yeah. We should return to that. Yeah. That is a very interesting observation. Right. Uh, if, if I could just, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. because uh, that's almost the title of uh, Sartre's first major work, mm -hmm. being and mm -hmm. nothingness. Mm -hmm. Now, but the nothingness yeah. is a self, is a self-imposed, situation because one chooses not to decide and not to act to be is to act you know you, you see and this is very very important uh vis-a-vis -vis anna's comments and 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 even our discussion of this movie, and I, I, I haven't seen it. And I was asking that same question, but go ahead, Megan. I just wanted right, to right, say right. that. Right, um, Yvonne also, uh, going back to Roe v. Wade, she said that's correct, Jahan. The overturning of Roe versus Wade by the US Supreme Court will not outlaw or restrict abortions unless the state legislatures do so. Um, Joe said, when I first watched the film, I thought they were trying to put a positive spin on realism. Like since nothing matters, let's just enjoy the present and the time we have. That's yeah, that's kind of what Emil was saying. I do think you that say Joe said that. Joe, Joe Russ, yeah. Oh, Joe. He said, I do think that the film was well made and was good at provoking thought, but I do believe we need something that drives people towards a positive change for society. My main problem with the film is that it felt like it was saying we should just settle. Okay. Uh, you don't yeah. agree with that, Emily? This film was a good start to introducing more indie films that explore ideas like the importance of family life and nihilism. But we definitely need something more nurturing for the soul. Yeah, and I can I can see I can see what he's saying because like if, if any if any universe is possible, you can just jump. Then what about struggling in yeah, this yeah. one? Uh, what about the truth? Yeah. What about the truth? Yeah. 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 Wasn't it kind of saying? <laughs> 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 like, can I? Can I it's still a book. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs>
No, okay, so I haven't not seen the movie, but because it's been so popular, it made me want to see it. So you can go. <laughs> you know, the first like um thought that I have about it was that fact like you can just go into every universe or whatever. So it's really whatever what you do. But then I realized while seeing the um the commercials that she is the only thing that really doesn't change because she has to protect herself mm -hmm. in each universe. Isn't so weird that no, she doesn't change? change. Yeah. No, it's like she goes into different universe, but it's but her that she has to keep safe. <laughs> right, but anyway, <laughs> what I wanted to say in the conversation about young people and whatnot is because I'm still trying to figure out where Black people kind of are at. Back to um, uh, what uh, Daniel you had to say about you know the persuasion that the Democratic Party wants to have on the hold of people and things like that. Because mm -hmm. the first response that Mimi had here was like, "Okay, they're trying to take away abortion. Like we can't let that happen." Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Well, logically, if that was the only..." problem that we're dealing with in terms if the problem that is put to the people is the fact that they're taking away of our abortion then yes that's not something that i would want but is that really what's going on um and i think that this like people need the free school i need the free school to understand the complexities of the situation because i didn't know the timing i wasn't looking into it but either way, it's something that you can look into. So, mm -hmm. but it speaks to the moment that um, there's these conflicting things happening, but there is a inability without the state prepared you without a situation like a school, which literally talks and questions. Um, about what things mean in the time that they're happening and why they're happening. So there's like, um, it's like intersection is one concept, but then it's like how do dialectics work? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the fact that, well, if things are happening at the same time, well, mm -hmm. you have to analyze why mm -hmm. and you get to a conclusion, you reach a conclusion. And so like, even if, even if the problem, which is that abortion uh, should be a right that is protected for women to have, is I guess important so that women have a right to stay and have their own independence and freedom and things like that. What is its purpose? Why is it being said to us now? Mm -hmm. And those are the questions that I think that, I don't know how much, I can't say generally with black people, but I'm still trying to, I feel like I'm looking for like a, where are the black people that are clearer about these issues? Because with younger people, there's like the overlap of what we're kind of talking about. There's the nihil, there's this question about, well, what is nihilism? But like, and then what, what kinds of nihilism? Um, but also like, <clears throat> Yeah, like what? There's like a disenchantment, and then there's like the hood. Yeah, generally, but then there's like the hood thing, um, which is always like it's just dangerous. It's just a dangerous time, 
and um but it just seems with people my age and i'm mostly referring to like artists and things like that who are black or whatever um i just think about them because i don't think they really know what's going on all that much mm -hmm. and it's really kind of easy to i guess do what you need to do to get to where you have to get in life just materially said and so my worry is that there there's a lot of like okay well this lost song i don't i want to curse but i'm but it's like this is like all rubbish and it doesn't really matter anyway it's not really it's affecting me and it's bad and there's lots of going on that i don't understand mm -hmm. um but i also don't know how to understand it mm -hmm. what is the way in which i think about these problems mm -hmm. And I think that goes to the question of how do we see this movie? How do we, how do we um, see the, our role and responsibility in society? Um, but I do think that Black people generally are just like, well, this was this whole system is working against me from the jump anyway, so they're working from that point. But um, but so I wanted to say that. Uh, Can I ask you a question, Sarah? Could you go back? a formulation right before you said, and I, I, it, it slipped, I, I heard it, then I wanted to remember, but I didn't. Right before you say, the way we understand it, what, what did you say right before that? The way we understand the world, what did I say? Yeah, but you said something right, if anybody remember, there was a formulation you made and, oh God. Oh, I'm saying another. No, but I want that formulation because I think it's, ah. Does anybody remember? Does anybody remember? <laughs> that's, all, no, that's all right. Anybody remember? She was just right before she said, uh, "Our way of um, people don't have a way of understanding." Part of, oh, I, don't, I don't think I have it, but I mean, it reminds, <laughs> reminds me of what the title of this book, uh, "Being or Nothing," is. Yes, yes. And I think uh, one time in preschool, you had said that you know, the black working class, they might not be doing anything, but they're thinking and thinking is an action. Yeah. And, you know, so what Serafina, I would think part of what she was saying at the end was uh, black artists are just focusing on the meager subsistence. They're not feeding their soul. They're not uh, being in their entirety because of this nihilism. It's, it's, it's that, but it's not really quite neat quite that of what I'm saying, but it's just the time. It's not really the time. Uh, actually, I don't. But so, I, I'm very sorry. I, you said it. I wanted to hold on to it, but then I was trying to hear what you were saying afterwards, too. And it was something that gets us into what Jeremiah was asking. Sorry. And I think kind of uh, what uh, Kathy was getting at. You know, it's sometimes what we call our criteria mm -hmm. of knowing mm -hmm. or uh, our method of knowing or the conditions of knowing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think you were raising the question of what does this work of art say about our capacity to know and hence to act and to change the world? Uh, and that I mean, that seems to be the preoccupation of the free school. Mm -hmm. What can we know in order to change the world? Mm -hmm. 
and in changing the world, change ourselves and changing ourselves, change, whatever. But you raised that question and it was, I forgot, I couldn't remember how you put, go ahead. No, um, because, no, I mean, but it's just like there's like the old the world view. I'm not getting my right. No, no, no. The way you said it, it but think about it. Maybe you'll you'll recall it. But it was very interesting to me um, what you were getting at, and it it did. You know it it elevated the criteria of critique. Mm -hmm to a level, to a philosophical level, you know, which takes us back to Hegel, a science of sciences, a, well, let me just make this one point, the question of negation, not as a negative, but as a positive, mm -hmm. to understand negation and change is the question before, um, uh, before um, uh, our work, I mean, what we do, understanding change and its possibilities. That, that's all I wanted to say. What to know something is to know it in its in the process of its becoming or its changing. And you know, essence is not essentialism with the negative uh, connotations that that has in current academic discussion, but it is to, the essence of a thing is it's becoming. And this is a, uh, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just thinking that like, another thing that I found with my initial response to the reading was how much, like uh, if Hegel was worked out, then everything everywhere all at once, like wouldn't really be, that much of a question because um, there would be an understanding of dialectics, but um. <laughs> no. And and so let's kind of transition to Hegel, yes. but let's transition to Hegel via Noam Chomsky. Oh, yeah. Do you mind? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess you know everybody knows Noam knows of Noam Chomsky. Most cited academic, most cited living academic. Yes. For someone to say greatest living academic philosopher. Oh, right, 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 right. Um, and, you know, <laughs> uh, I mean, it is, he is a phenomenon. He is a what sometimes in in philosophy is called a, a, a black swan, an unusual event, a special kind of person. You know, he's published 150 books by the latest count, but his, and as a public intellectual, he has influenced several generations about how to understand political and social events and how to interpret, uh, well, I'll put it this way, uh, communications. Uh, and really, I think one of his great contributions is to, dis, uh, to disclose that 
communication from the elite to the masses is completely controlled and manipulated. Uh, and as such is a form of propaganda and social control. Great, and he did this over 30 years ago. But his academic research centers upon linguistics. And I want to say, because this takes us right to Hegel, because it raises the question of Kant and Hegel. Um, there is no question that the greatest, most important philosophical influence upon Noam Chomsky is Kant. You look at, well, his, um, I think his major work is called Syntactic Structures. Is that, is that the title of it? Yeah. yeah. So, and it's his 1955 dissertation, which is published in 1957. And this work uh, claims to have influenced multiple disciplines of knowledge, including philosophy, analytical philosophy, including neuro and cognitive sciences, well, linguistics, anthropology, and so on. It is like he affects what is called a paradigm shift in academic knowledge. That is huge. Now, having said that, I am not prepared to say that, well, first of all, that everything in that work that Chomsky claims to have discovered it was his discovery. He is what we call a structuralist and a neo-Kantian. Is neo-Kantianism or Kantianism the final word in knowledge discovery and knowledge construction? Let me put that enough way. Does that make sense the way I said? I mean, if it did. You know, explain structural. Right? Yeah, I'm going to do that in okay. one second, man. I want to get, yeah, I, that's that's what I'm trying to get to. Be, um, is struct, structuralism a la Immanuel Kant the final word? on how we explain language, how we explain uh, cognitive science, mm -hmm. how we explain communications, mm -hmm. how we explain um, computing, et cetera. And I'm emphasizing the question, how we explain how we understand, how we know. Right. You right. dig what I'm saying? And that's where the battle is, always. Now, uh, as to what Danny said, structuralism. When I use the word, and when most in philosophy and other fields use the concept structuralism, they're not talking about physical structures. 
Structuralism is a method in the social and philosophical sciences that says that the grounding of our knowledge, of our reasoning, is something that occurs before the act of reasoning and, and thinking. If it doesn't, please ask me. <laughs> that there are conditions that exist prior to the act of thinking that I'm going to use con that conditions thinking itself. Those conditions are what we call a priori, a and then priori like that, before the fact, before we even think, before we even speak, before we even communicate, there are existing conditions that make all of that possible. That is quintessentially Immanuel Kant. If there's anything to love about Kant, it is that clarity. But it's not to mean we have to agree with Kant or Kantianism. And hence, the counterpole, the alternative to Kantianism is Hegel. See, what Kant says is all of these conditions of knowledge are not known very well and cannot be known very well. Now, for Noam Chomsky, language, and, and this is, a, you know, and I, I think people who say this about him are absolutely right. He takes language out of the realm of behaviorism and therefore the possibility of cultural and racial hierarchy, that therefore some languages are better than others because some cultures are better than others. That's behavior, or that's what behaviorism would devolve, had devolved into, a kind of hierarchy of languages based upon uh, the cultures that produce them. What Chomsky said is that language is universal, and it comes with the condition, the condition of all language is the human brain itself. And every brain is the same, blase, blase, blase. So language is a universal attribute of being human. It's a beautiful thing. He's right. Now, here is the problem. And it is the question of evolution, of dialectics of the movement of 
and change development that is inherent to Hegelian dialectics. Is the brain a static structure? What are the dialectics of the development of language? Let me give you an example of what I'm saying. The dialectic between the universally human and the particular. Okay, remember we talked last week about the abstract universal yeah. and the concrete universal. The abstract universal mm -hmm. is one could suggest an a priori, a condition, you know? The concrete universal is the actuality. Somebody mentioned this. Oh, you mentioned it just now today, Jeremiah, that dialectics is not without content. Mm -hmm. That even as Hegel talks about logic and dialectics in the abstract, he is doing so to ultimately anchor it in concrete realities. Even as Marx upholds Hegel, it is Marx who establishes the concrete universal. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Dust Capital. Mm -hmm. I say all of this to say that the great Noam Chomsky is still a Kantian. Mm -hmm. Can you just yes, uh, repeat what you were saying about the abstract? You, you said the, the concrete universal is with content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the abstract universal is in contrast. Is the metaphysical. <laughs> is the a <laughs> Is that realm, and I'm, I'm interpreting it now from a Kantian, I'm Noam Chomsky from a Kantian point of view, that the abstract universal, which are all of these a priori, he says the brain and so on, which is a given, a condition of language. Kantian, Kantianism, Immanuel Kant's system is multi-level, but the, the, frank, the architecture is that thought is conditioned that we, we don't just think, we don't just reason. It is conditioned, but those conditions, well, he calls a categorical imperative at times, the a priori conditions of reasoning, but those are given time and space. We don't have to define time and space in any complex ways in order to reason to understand reasoning that occurs through these categorical imperatives, imperatives of thinking itself. Now here's the, okay, I, I hope that makes sense what I'm trying to say, but here's where Hegel is the great revolutionary, even if he didn't complete it. 
he says that the conditions itself are conditioned. Oh, go ahead, Jerry. <laughs> Can I just say one small thing? That the conditions, so here, here we have a set of givens, static conditions that make reasoning possible. Hegel throws it back. He begs the question, he begs the question to put it that way. He says, well, aren't the conditions themselves conditioned? Are they not subject to the negation of negation? This is why my last point, whereas Kant says that a whole realm of reality is beyond knowing, that we know things as phenomenon, as they are given to our senses, but we reason about them based upon these a priori conditions that are unchanging, that are structural, structuralism always thinks and explains things from certain unchanging conditions. Hegel asserts in the logic that there are no unchanging conditions. Now, if I could just throw one little curveball in the game. Du Bois's uncaused causes. And that is the Du Bois introducing what would later be called the existential, but the human factor which Du Bois upsets in that way, a precondition of structuralism itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. But anyway, I'll stop right, I'll stop there and then go ahead, Jerry, and then we'll start reading. Uh, well, this is just based on the reading, so. Yeah, go ahead, no, you go ahead. Because one of the things that I was most excited about was, it seemed like Hegel was saying that logic itself changes mm -hmm. or that he's saying that because one of the the passages from the pdf was he's saying if logic has not undergone change since aristotle right. then surely the right. conclusion to be drawn is all the more in need of a total reworking so that it's like because if i understood correctly part of what he's saying is that the content that emerges from the conditions itself has a relationship with those those conditions and that's, that's what change that's yes. what that dynamic is what leads to the the continual change of like those a priori conditions themselves yes. and so yeah i don't know i, I wasn't entirely sure what no. he was saying but like this this idea that like what he was trying to do was to even like to usher in the change of like the logic I don't know if I was. No, no, keep going, going, keep going. I think I would agree with you, you know, and um, to me, 
This is what makes Hegel such a revolutionary thinker, almost uncompromising, uh, something that he criticizes Kant for. He feels Kant compromised too much with the English empiricist. Mm -hmm. And he says it, and he, uh, and I could have had this wrong. I felt he was very angry at Kant for having made such a compromise. And, you know, um, it's almost like dialectics in the, in the Hegelian sense opens us up and philosophy up to this constant disruption, mm -hmm. these constant revolutions or shifts that logic is a method of knowing, a philosophical method of knowing. Uh, and he is calling for a revolution in knowledge, a revolution in logic, among other things. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it now, you know, you could say, well, uh, maybe he's just a mad anarchist, you know? Maybe he is a guy that wants to throw everything away for the sake of what is new. But I don't find that to be the case either. Um, but I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. Go okay, ahead. I have a question. Uh, so, on this issue of the concrete universal versus the, uh, the abstract universal versus the concrete mm -hmm. universal, and I'm also assuming that they're they're related as well, right? There's a relation between the abstract yes. and the concrete mm -hmm. universal. From what I understood, you were saying that uh, Marx and uh, Das Kapital mm -hmm. that is basically you know using the universal in a concrete way. Absolutely. You know, like that term that he saying, uses both, in fact. Right, using both. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, so, but is it is it also what is it correct to say that is looking at the Hegelian method? Uh, and way of thinking versus the Kantian that also when we were talking about the universal and the Hegelian sense that a question of relations was also like the relationship you know between the abstract and concrete mm -hmm, even within mm -hmm, the concrete mm -hmm, you're looking at things in a relational way right that's the question of social relations and this is very and nice. even what you were saying with language so I was thinking you know that gets to the question even of uh, language is something very relational right in each and, and concrete in every society and then with Du Bois, you get into the question of civilization as well. So there's a human universal, but it does not mean that it's a mechanical thing that's the same in every society. Even what we were talking about earlier with abortion and the way people are viewing it in different ways. The question of, like, for example, if you were to say the, the woman question, the question of women's liberation, you have to look at, I mean, there's a there's universality there, the abstract universal, but then what, what does that concrete universal look like? And I think part of the challenge with the social imperialism is challenging the idea that, that there is not a concrete universal right that it, it's going to take a different form mm -hmm. and in fact the white universal may not be the concrete universal mm -hmm. for most humanity mm -hmm. um so anyway, that's what i was thinking yeah, i think that's very very important you know i think implicit to chomsky is the notion of a so he has a general theory of linguistics, a general theory of language. That's what his work is. So it is a, I would argue, um, uh, 
It is the use of the con the abstract universal. It is a it is a claim, and and if you if you listen to Noam Chomsky, Chomsky is very deductive always in his uh, lectures, his writing, very deductive. He proceeds from a set of principles and then argues, you know, um, his position in that way. Uh, deduction is, you know, I could be wrong as two left feet about this. And, you know, we can debate, people will debate this issue. Deduction itself as a method is the use of the abstract universal to talk about the concrete yeah. universal. <clears throat> Apropos what, I think Danny, you had said this too, wrote this, that for Hegel, and this, and Marx acknowledges this, that of all the idealist philosophers, Hegel was more materialist than any of them. The dialectic brought him closer to the concrete. So he was, you know, in the first part of the science of logic, it is objective logic, which he is exploring and arguing what this dialectical method would look like and would mean in terms of knowledge and what we could know and how we would proceed to know. Um, so it does have that deductive or abstract universal character. But the question is, but why is he doing that? He is doing the abstract universal in order to study the concrete world. There is no question. Well, it's with Kant too, it's with Noam Chomsky. It is the concrete world that they want to know. But for Hegel, this unity of deductive and inductive logics, now that's just, I'm just talking about, but to do it is the problem, is where the difficulty lies. And I'll just end on this. You know, we went through a lot of stuff on uh, uh, quantum mechanics and all of the science and philosophy around that and the debates whether, you know, Niels Bohr's finally had it right or whether the whole discussion was just shut down prematurely and has to be reopened, at least in the West. And I asked the question, could a Kantian methodology bring us any closer to solving the questions raised by quantum physics. My argument is that the argument between let us say Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein could only be resolved through the application of dialectical logic. That the question of quantum mechanics is not a question of what we observe in the instruments we use to observe physical phenomena, but the question is really philosophical. You know, I would make the same argument apropos language and Noam Chomsky and structuralism, that it is unresolved, that the question is a question 
of philosophy mm. rather than a question of uh well mm. uh the con the, the concrete universal mm. however you to there has to be that philosophical struggle a philosophical debate over how we know these things and so the two poles at this point are behaviorism and structuralism. Noam Chomsky as a structuralist and the behavior is B.F. Skinner. You know, somewhere in there you get the French Levi Strauss and those people who are structuralists too. Uh, but I'm not quite certain. Oh, I'm sorry. The anthropologists, yes, 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 yes. But the huge figure, at least in the Anglo-American world, remains Noam Chomsky. And it is Kantianism. It is not the Hegelian dialectic. It is, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just stop there. You know. if, if you want, we could start reading. How do we go about this? We should pull it up on our phones. Yeah, I'll share it on the live stream. So maybe, are you going to? Before we start, Joe has a question. Um, just to clarify, is the abstract universal how the world is perceived? Thus, meaning that the concrete universal is what the world is, and also what is inductive and inductive logic? That's a very the first part is very, very important. Uh, the abstract universal is the traditional manner that philosophers have sought uh, to know the world through knowing it in its abstract form. Uh, I cannot emphasize enough that pre, uh, I could say modern science, that philosophers uh, were preoccupied be, be they Hegel or, or Plato, mm -hmm. or frankly, even Descartes, maybe Spinoza and so, mm -hmm. were preoccupied with the abstract universal. Mm -hmm. To know a thing is to know it in its abstract form, mm -hmm. in its non-concrete form. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the concrete universal, most highly associated with that in social science is Karl Marx and Das Kapital. And it's, I mean, we, we, we could take a whole nother, uh, how many months just studying that, that methodology. Uh, but it is the concrete universe. I think Marx makes this very apparent uh, in his discussion of method and such. Uh, Another would be uh, Black Reconstruction, mm -hmm. the concrete universal. Mm -hmm. And Lenin. Huh? Or Lenin also. Yeah, Lenin, no question, no question. So that, yeah. Now, inductive is to reason from uh, the empirical, the concrete to the general. Mm -hmm. uh, deductive is to reason from the general to the particular. You repeat, you repeat the thing about inductive. 
Você é filho de espada. I'm sorry. Your thing about inductive and deductive. Yeah, deductive is logical reasoning uh, from the abstract to the particular. You know, probably I think the you know the great example of deductive logic, the deductive reasoning is mathematics. Mm -hmm. Inductive reasoning is from the concrete to the general. What Hegel proposes is a dialectical relation between the deductive and inductive. And what we see in Marx in his attempt to discover the concrete universal is and it, it's it's a very dicey and, and and you could see him it's a struggle within das capital the dialectic between deductive and inductive absolutely you took the words out of my mouth value and um uh Use value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Value in general and value in its concrete form. But the concrete, and this this is why Marx, we we use the concept, the ascendance, the ascension to the concrete. I mean, it's almost him being a little bit satirical and uh critiquing. This, all of these philosophers, you know, who are just interpreting the world, as he would put it. But so he's, it's, he's being a little bit satirical, or sar sarcastic. And he says, uh, there's nothing uh, so prioritizing or precious about uh, the abstract. In fact, uh, the real place that we want to be where all the complexity is is in the concrete the concrete universal frankly i don't know that hegel answered that question it was marx and you know you can find his writings on methodology in this big volume called the Grundrisses. you know and this particular thing, the ascendancy to the concrete, not descending from the abstract to the concrete. Can I just say one more thing about Noam Chomsky on this? Because he is so huge. Uh, I have to say, if you don't mind me, I'm sorry, just go around and around on this, uh, Jerry. But Noam Chomsky is huge. I don't think we understand in American public intellectual life. And, you know, he's achieved the status by just doing him, as it were. I mean, just uh, simply explaining over and over all of the, these. Uh, re, um, concrete realities of, of American capitalism, imperialism, and so on. I forgot what the fuck I was going to say. <laughs> so forgive me. I was something I was. Um, you gave it something. No, no, 
you're not getting to the Ukraine Trump. No, 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 no. Thank you. The thing is that Chomsky is considered by millions of people to be the preeminent American intellectual. This is very, very important. Um, I, I want to just. Um, so when he achieves that iconic status, um, his method and philosophy philosophies are no longer examined. Now, in terms of his linguistic philosophy or his linguistic theories, there are oppositional thinkers that look at his work from a methodological point. I don't know what that debate looks like. But in terms of his uh, positioning on political and war and peace matters, he's un, in many ways pretty much uncontested on the left. But like with quantum mechanics, all of the important questions are most of the important questions are the philosophical questions. And that's why, again, Hegel becomes so important, as you have mentioned. So yeah, that, that's what I was trying to get at. And again, therefore, in the ideological struggle, as we were saying, like Clausewitz, war is politics by other means. Philosophy is ideological struggle by other means. There is no, you cannot fully engage the ideological struggle without addressing and engaging the philosophical issues of thinkers. I don't give a damn who they are. You know, that there, there are undergirding philosophical questions that are all as old as human thought is, but as current as this moment is. And every philosophical question, and this is the dialectic of that, is undergirded by ideological predispositions. So if we're going to do Chomsky as a ideologue and as a philosopher, we have to account for the fact that he is an anarchist. And a libertarian socialist, whatever the fuck that means. <laughs> you see the problem? It, so it is no way to just do one without the other, and especially a huge figure like Noam Chomsky. And then it raises the other question, if, Ch if Chomsky explains it all, then where does that leave Du Bois or Baldwin? You see what I'm saying? How do we then evaluate knowledge? And let us say, forgive me, Jerry, let us say that Du Bois is closer to Hegel than to Kant. What does that say if Chomsky is closer to Kant than to Hegel? So it's, it's you see how the whole thing is all interrelated. Okay. So y'all want to go to the readings now? Okay. Okay. Um, you guys are pulling up? Oh, no, no, no. I just got to...
Okay. Where are we going to start? Yeah, can I okay. Okay. No, no, we're, 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 I feel like we read that. Right. Oh, we okay. read that page like three times. Oh no. I thought we were on we're like 20. Which one is it? Yeah, you got two options. <laughs> okay, 27, we can start the side critique. Okay. Okay, do we have it? Let's let's start at the beginning of 26. So 26? we get into the yeah. Okay, cool. The critique of the, of the form. form. Of okay, that's very important. Okay. Now, you know what the word critique means. It means investigation. It does not mean what we think today to be critic, to think critic. Okay. okay, go ahead. Let's... So the critique of the forms of understanding has arrived precisely at this result, namely that such forms do not apply to things in themselves. This can only mean that they are in themselves something untrue. However, since they have been allowed to remain valid for reasoning and experience, the critique has not altered them in any way, but rather has let them be for the subject in the same shape as they formerly applied to the object. But if they are inadequate for the thing in itself, still less must the understanding to which they supposedly belong have to put up with them and rest content and rest content with them. Content. Content? Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, I see. And rest content with them. If they cannot be determination. Okay. Well, can I just. Uh, you just like uh, uh, footnote 10. Mm -hmm. See, the critique of the forms of understanding, and that is reference to Kant. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I just want to get right here. He's now. And when he talks about things in themselves, that's Kant's language. Things beyond our knowledge, which we could say condition knowledge. You see what I'm saying? So Hegel is going to critique or investigate the truth or the validity of that approach. So let's see how it works out. So, but if they are inadequate for the thing in itself, still less must the understanding to which they supposedly belong to have, or have to put up with them and rest content with them. If they cannot be determinations of the thing in itself, still less can they be determinations of the understanding to which they ought to conceive at least the dignity of a thing. Okay, okay, well, let's keep going. <laughs> we don't talk like that these days, but let's see how this goes. <laughs> the determinations of finite and infinite run into the same conflict, whether they are applied to time and space to the world or are determinations internal to the spirit, just as black and white yield gray whether they are mixed on a wall or on a pallet. If our representation of the world is dissolved when we carry over to it the determinations of the infinite and finite, still more is spirit itself. 
which contains both determinations within itself, mm -hmm. something inwardly self-contradictory, self-dissolving. It is not the nature of the material or the subject matter to which they are applied or in which they are found that they that can make a difference. For it is only through such determinations and in accordance with them that the subject matter has contradiction within okay, it. May I just just interpret it to interpret this paragraph, which again I would say, you know, it is specific to the time and the person or the thinker that he is debating with or the school of thought that he is de debating with. Again, he is debating with Immanuel Kant. You know what I'm saying? And the question of determination in another way, we can say the question of being, what makes something what it is and not something else? You know what I'm saying? Um, and oh yeah, so that, that's the big question here. Uh, he is asking, he's asking a series of questions right here. Uh, we'll get to this infinite finite thing in a minute, uh, but let, let's see how it works. The said critique has therefore removed the forms of objective thinking only from the thing, but has left them in the subject as it originally found them. Okay, <laughs> go ahead, keep saying, I'm sorry. That is to say, it did not consider them in and for themselves according to the proper content, but simply took them over for subjective logic in the manner of of lemmas. No, put a lemmas. Can somebody go down there? Lemmas. Yeah, yeah. This came up a, a few months ago when Hegel was saying that um, I'm not going to follow the old way of giving a definition and then a deduction. Yeah. So. Throughout the science of logic, instead of giving definitions, Hegel's going to show why you come to that category in the first oh, place. So, like in other words, you can't say becoming; you have to demonstrate why we even need a category of becoming, okay. mm -hmm. right? Which is he's going to take being and nothing and say, mm -hmm. "I can't tell the difference between mm -hmm. them." That's that for becoming, yeah. right? So this goes back to the abstract, concrete question earlier, mm -hmm. where the problem with distinguishing being and nothingness, they're so abstract that you can't tell me which one is which. Mm -hmm. And thought is compelled by that problem to give itself a new category called becoming. So mm -hmm. if you look at the table of contents, I'm just going to read mm -hmm. this. Hegel mm -hmm. is saying that all of these words, you see all these chapter titles, mm -hmm. they don't make any sense except with relation to each other. Right. Right. So like, you can't tell me what being means. You can't tell me what essence means. You can't tell me what measure means mm -hmm. without telling me what the other ones mean. They only make sense in its mm -hmm. totality. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So what he's saying with that content, because there's a lot of like weird back, you know, can I? Can you give me one minute to no, just get no, no, a little background yeah, yeah, yeah. knowledge? Because he's just kind of saying this. He's just like saying, you know, he's like saying this. Um, so he's talking about the antinomies of pure reason, mm -hmm. right? He's talking about Kant, and he's saying that the first part of the critique of pure reason, Kant just goes, "Well, Aristotle said these categories, mm -hmm. fine," and right. I'm just going to show why they exist or mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. And Hegel has this funny quip in his encyclopedia where he says. 
Well, what Kant wants to do is learn how to swim before jumping in the water, <laughs> right? Meaning he says, he wants to tell you about all these different words in the table of contents, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. But you have to tell me why I even need them in the first place. Like, why do I need a category of appearance and existence, uh -huh. right? So that's why this whole book is Hegel swimming <laughs> and you're reaching each of the different places and going, oh, that's why we need it because I could only distinguish these things mm -hmm. with these different parts what Kant does and it's a weird thing and that's why I know I don't know if Noam Chomsky is Kantian but I understand what you mean I understand what you mean <laughs> which is that he has a confusing way of presenting things where he has these categories and then he has the antinomies of your reason and I'll give a famous one which is uh, everything is caused and there's a first cause, mm -hmm. and that's an antinomy, right? Okay. So everything has a cause. Antinomy, mm -hmm. you say antenna? Antinomy, antinomy. antinomy. It, it's a contradict, it's paradoxical, it's a contradiction. Mm -hmm. So everything has a cause, but there must have been a first cause. Mm -hmm. But then that had a cause. Mm -hmm. But no, there must have been a first cause. And you go in this mm -hmm. infinite thing. And so what Hegel is saying when he says you take the categories of infinite and finite over into experience, mm -hmm. when you bring them into the world, they become contradictory. What Kant was discovering was freedom, that mm -hmm. freedom is contradictory, and this is what Hegel is running with, mm -hmm. because freedom raises the question of freedom, mm -hmm. and then it critiques that. Mm -hmm. It says, no, that's a limit on freedom. You can go beyond that. So he's saying the problem with Kant is that got taken over as an excuse and this is it actually goes back to the earlier discussion we had where people were like oh what Kant showed is that I just can't know this and so it's on faith or something yeah. so there's a guy J Jacoby nobody ever talks about him mm -hmm. but Hegel and his encyclopedia is like just going after this guy mm -hmm. he's just somebody who's a contemporary and so the next paragraph is going to be about Fichte. He's not going to say the name Fichte. He's just going to say consistent transcendental idealism. Mm -hmm. But he's talking about the students of Kant. And Hegel is saying all of these people have, in a sense, been suffering with this problem. And what I'm going to show, and I think he said it before he goes, is I might be wrong, but I know this is the true method to knowing. Mm -hmm. Because it's imminent. It's not another standard. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to just hey, here's a bunch of definitions, being and stuff. And, you know, you have to tell me why. Why, why do I know what being is? Why do I know what quantity is or quality? Instead, he's going to think with you. You're going to be reading the book. You're going to be thinking with Hegel. And he's going to demonstrate in every paragraph. That's true. Then we come to this. And we have to come to this based on the antecedent development. Right? And so... I'm excited for the next chapter, which is where must science begin? Because he's like, oh, all these people just presuppose all these things into existence, right? They presuppose definitions, they presuppose categories, they presuppose egos, all these things. And he goes, I'm literally going to ask the question, is, like the, that word is, what is? And in trying to tell me what is, thought has to start moving. Mm -hmm. It has to start saying, well, it's this and it's not that. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, that's growing concreteness. It's distinguishing. Mm -hmm. And then if you start to do that, and then that's just the whole thing. That's kind of what Marx does in Capital, but that's a, we, that's another thing as well. But this is, this is very interesting. Thank you very yeah. much, Danny. Appreciate you. Um, this question, uh, I, I just... Um, See, I think if I might just um, 
Stenwich is saying that Hegel is even more revolutionary than that. Because, you know, he is, and you're right, he is saying that Kant wants us to take certain things as given on faith, that we can only know things as they appear to us. Kant is saying we must know things as they are. Um, but that's all I would say, yeah. Wow. Any, any questions? What was the, what was the <laughs> Oh. Because that's the old way of doing philosophy. It's Spinoza. Mm -hmm. Do you read Spinoza's what were you ethics? What you're describing a dilemma or a lemma is just like a subpart of it's a part when you're proving a theorem, you prove something smaller right, first right, to right. give a lead up. And so he's saying that's the old way of doing philosophy is you give definitions and axioms and then you deduce. And he says, in order to tell me the axiom, you have to tell me what is first. Before you tell me being is blah blah blah. He's like, no, no, no. Stop. Tell me even what is. You have to even tell me how I know what an axiom is. What is an axiom? What, what's a lemma? What's a definition? In this conversation, close with it's like triads of like students with Hegel. So Claus was is not saying analyzing um, Hegel, but he's using post, he's using Kandian ways and methodologies, but he's in between like a triad, he's in between these Schelling and these German philosophers fit, and he's he's mo he's motivating on war through his own interest in these um, circumstances of what is spirit, what is energy, what is time, what is space. He utilizing it not just in the martial field of thinking, mm -hmm. but he's like exponent. Like it's like a physics camp going on because they all exchanging methodologies. But they're not they're not isolating Kant at all. They're bringing Kant in because this logic could it's not illogical, but it's just a different form of well, it wasn't logic, it wasn't rational, but but they're making something out of it because they, they are borrowing these different ways of like the music of shelling and 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 the art of these people um, conversing with, with through Marx and through Engel. And, and and then and then on war that they on war Lenin and them is on war students of like all of these types of, of Marxist Lenin's now change the whole they all are triads of thinkers I'm just using triads this abstract so that they could converse about you know what is this being this and not being what is this being what is being and not being I'm one more thought so in my mind sitting <laughs> here I say well. You gotta read Suzuki's Zen and Buddhism because he's like a he's 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 a century person bringing something from other areas without without saying well go do the research go look in the German thinkers because Japanese and German thinkers they was very acquainted in different periods in the historical thing too. So this is but this is a very for me this is a formative <laughs> level of being. <laughs> Form, but but what the purpose, Tony? You you know what I'm saying it's like a purposeful guiding thing because I can't go around trying to navigate. I've been I've been to Germany like a student when I went there. I wasn't there to on my vacation. I was there. I was there like my brother introduced me. He already told. I'm talking. I'm trying to figure out what 
you know, what is this people I'm around? And they're all in Hegelian kind of manners for, from their parents and then what they've been trying to explore, not just on the Vietnam War, but the resistance movement. You know what I mean? Like we were, we made, you know, we came out of the resistance movement, but all of this is being explained through, um, um, through Hegel. But, but, but since we're in the middle of this war right now, the Russian students are not just Klaus Wittgen, okay? Mm -hmm. they, they have went into the German manual of certain things that, that are done in the art of um, the economy, the economies. Like who's running these economies and capitalism? Mm -hmm. Now let's get back yeah. to the text. This is very interesting. I'm sorry, I'm this, this notes is in my mind. Yeah. Right there was no question, therefore, of an imminent deduction of such forms, or also of deducing them as logical subjective forms, still less of a dialectical treatment of them. In its more consistent form, transcendental idealism Hans. did not recognize the nothingness of the spectral thing in itself. This abstract shadow divorced from all content left over by critical philosophy, and its goal was to destroy it completely. This philosophy also made a start at letting reason produce its determinations from itself. But the subjective attitude assumed in the attempt prevented it from coming to fruition. This attitude and together with it, the attempt and the cultivation of pure science were eventually abandoned. This is clear. Oh, Fichte, he's talking about Fichte. Because yeah, he says in its more consistent development. Mm -hmm. So Fichte instantly goes back to the nominal. But mm -hmm. mm -hmm. so what is commonly. So Fichte, as an extension, as a student of Pond. Fichte basically says he tries to do this thing where he's like, I'm going to produce everything out of the eye. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Hegel's going to go after that in the what must science begin with? He okay. says that's actually already too con too concrete. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, what is commonly understood by logic is considered with a total disregard of metaphysical significance. This science, in the state in which it defines itself, mm -hmm. has admittedly no content of the kind which ordinary consciousness would accept as reality or as genuine fact. Mm -hmm. But it is not for that reason a formal science void of any material truth. Mm -hmm. Besides, the reason of truth is not to be sought in the material missing in it, mm -hmm. a lack to which the in insufficiency of logic is usually attributed. More to the point is that the emptiness of the logical forms lie rather solely in the manner in which they are considered and dealt with. Scattered in fixed determinations and thus not held together in organic unity, they are dead forms and the spirit which is their vital concrete unity does not reside in them. Therefore, they lack proper content, a matter that would in itself be substance. The content which is missed in the logical forms is nothing else and a fixed foundation and a concrete and concretion, concretion of these abstract determinations. And such a substantial being is usually sought for them 
outside them. Mm -hmm. The logical reason is itself the substantial or real factor which within itself holds together all the abstract determinations and constitutes their proper, absolutely concrete unity. There's no need, therefore, to look far and wide for what is usually called a matter. It is not the fault of the subject matter of logic if the latter seems empty, but only of the matter in which this subject matter is grasped. Mm -hmm. This reflection brings us to a statement of the standpoint from which logic is to be considered, of how the standpoint differs from previous treatments of the science and is alone the true base on which the science is to rest in the future. In the phenomenology of spirit, I presented consciousness as it progresses from the first immediate opposition of itself mm -hmm. and the subject matter to absolute knowledge. Mm -hmm. This path traverses all the forms of the relation of consciousness to the object, and its result is the concept of science. Okay, let's, uh, let's do that one more time. Okay. Um, the progression of of uh, from the first immediate the first you know so i want to underline immediate mm -hmm. that is the first encounter the the um the perception mm -hmm. the and really what he what you could also call a thing in its phenomenal form mm -hmm. as it is presented to us mm -hmm. um the first immediate opposition of itself and the subject matter to absolute absolute knowledge. Mm -hmm. Absolute knowledge means with a capital T truth. Mm -hmm. um, this path traverses all the forms of the relation of consciousness to the object, the subject, the person, the perceiver, mm -hmm. to the objects of perception, mm -hmm. the world outside of the perceiver. Mm -hmm. or, or the subject of you or me or whoever. Now, this is very, very important because he acknowledges its existence and its existence as a object of knowledge, mm -hmm. that the objective world is what reasoning ultimately is about. Mm -hmm. For Kant, Again, we go back to Kant. It is not the objective world. It is the things that we perceive, the subjective world, mm -hmm. which is the uh, well object of reasoning. That if there is truth, truth comes from our reasoning about the things that we experience. Mm -hmm. I just want to... Can I say something oh, yeah, very please, quickly? Please, Just, please. It was on the page prior. So mm -hmm. uh, Hegel has a kind of snarky clip that he says, like, well, if these are only about appearances, then mm -hmm. they're no good for understanding either. Yeah. It was on the preceding yeah, page. Yeah, yeah. So you knew the famous, I think, therefore I am, but yeah. the hard thing. Mm -hmm. So Kant mm -hmm. challenges that. Uh -huh, and then uh -huh. Nietzsche makes fun of him later by saying, oh, Kant proves I can't even know myself uh -huh. because I can only know the appearance of myself and I can't know the thing of myself. So what Hegel is saying then in these pages is that actually we can know why these categories exist 
and they exist, this goes back to what Jeremiah was raising, <clears throat> because the content of them is spirit, it's mm -hmm. human spirit, mm -hmm. meaning what we're learning in the 18th and 19th century is that logic wasn't just like good thinking, maybe is how it maybe was thought by Aristotle, this is right thinking, mm -hmm. but that humanity itself in its mm -hmm. development gave itself logic in order to grasp the world. Mm -hmm. And so it's, and that's why it's objective. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, like, in other words, this whole thing is supposed to be about Marxist's great phrase when he's very young, he's still in college. Mm -hmm. The world becomes philosophical and philosophy becomes worldly. They're learning about the worldliness of philosophy. Yeah. It's not a caste thing, like, you know, maybe like Aristotle's part of the caste. Mm -hmm. It's the world is philosophical. And Hegel's trying to say, when you go to the supermarket, you're thinking about all of this at all times. It may not be explicit to you, yeah. but it's implicit. That's the kind of wild and crazy thing. He's saying you're thinking about even world history when you're like, mm -hmm. should I get an apple or an orange? Yeah. That's they or at least consistently, you would have to think about world history. Yeah, this is because yeah. I was just rereading the Booker T versus Du Bois, and he essentially says this that like the way we thought, the impulses. It was actually reflecting the history of the times, yeah. you know, between the people who are fighting for freedom and the yeah. people who are accommodating. Yeah. So even he even says the impulses, the movements we were making, all yeah. of that was. So it, it was yeah. I mean, it's uh, how history lives in us, yeah. and how are the forces and products, but then the uncaused cause, what choice do we make? It's the goal is double consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You, the both double consciousness. You yeah. were the both, and yeah. I, my examination is that self-examination is that the both is the only student that I, that researched to follow. That he went to German world thinkers with all of their architecture, structural stuff going on, mm -hmm. and he goes in there and he presenting this to um, William James about this this double about consciousness. But double consciousness. See, this is, and then, but this, he, this is where. But then, yeah, yeah, that's, but then, that's but right. Then he, um, but then now he's. With, now I'm just gonna make the story. But he's with the German students. They're listening to the Bose talking about consciousness. When Hegel used to bring it like that, Hegel the Bose bringing it double consciousness. That's it. And now he now, now the Bose. One more thing. Now the Bose brought the Dark Princess out of India. Right into German philosophy, right? So now double consciousness don't mean just regular consciousness. Like you gotta get, go do what you gotta do. It's some other deeper fat fiber of existence with phenomenal knowledge that goes into. Now he's a- Can I ask you a question? Do you think that Du Bois then upsets or turns upside down the whole structure of German philosophy. I see it in one of my books, I count, I say Du Bois, he don't want to sell, I'm using the word Buddhism. I'm not using it in the narrow, not constricting. Mm -hmm. To me, I root, I root and say Du Bois is like bringing like his social course into history, but he must have been, I'll say he must have been with the Indian philosophers and scientists and doctors because, because he, he cannot bring the dark princes into the 20th century where these people is crazy, these people is in, in the United States, but he does anyway. But he does it because he has the consciousness of so I'm, the, that the Buddhists used to turn over caste and turn over, they turned over huge things that went from India, you know, how modern they wouldn't even be with that today if that thing hadn't transpired with the way the Bowers thinks and then they kind of, you know, 
you know, articulating mint. His mind is the articulating master teacher like thing. Okay. Yeah, that's all right. That's cool. Now let's keep that in our minds too. Let's go back and let's keep rolling on this. This path traverses all the forms of the relation of consciousness to the object, and its result is the concept of science. There is no need, therefore, to justify this concept here, apart from the fact that it, it emerges within logic itself. It has already been justified in the other works and would indeed not be capable of any other justification than it is produced by consciousness as all its shapes dissolve into that concept as into their truth. A, dis a discursive justification or explanation of the concept of science can yield at best a general notion of it and a historical acquaintance, but a definition of science, mm -hmm. or more precisely, of logic, mm -hmm. has its proof only in the necessity of the manner in which in in the of the matter it is produced mm -hmm. by consciousness, as just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Any definition with which a science makes an absolute beginning can I'm sorry. I was saying, uh -huh. Oh, <laughs> can contain nothing else than the precise and correct expression of what is presented in one's mind mm -hmm. as the traditionally accepted subject matter and purpose of the science. Mm -hmm. That just this subject matter and this purpose are so represented is a historical warrant for invoking such or such fact as conceded, or more precisely, only for pleading that such or such fact should be accepted as conceded. Mm -hmm. There will always be the possibility that someone else will adduce a case, an instance, in which something more and different must be understood by some term or other, mm -hmm. a term which is therefore to be defined in a narrower or broader sense, and the science too, will have to be refashioned accordingly. Further still, mm -hmm. definition is always a matter of argumentation as to what is to be included in it or excluded from it, within which limits and to what extent. But argumentation is open mm -hmm. to the most manifold and various opinions. And on these a decision can finally be determined only arbitrarily. In this method of beginning science with a definition, no mention is made of the need to demonstrate the necessity of its subject matter, mm -hmm. and hence the necessity of the science itself. Right. The concept of pure science and its deduction is therefore presupposed in the present work insofar as the phenomenology of spirit is nothing other than that deduction. Absolute knowledge is the truth of all the modes of consciousness mm -hmm. because as the course of the phenomenology brought out, it is mm -hmm. only in the absolute knowledge that the separation of the subject matter from the certainty of itself is completely resolved. Truth has become equal to certainty and this certainty to truth. 
This is very important. There's something beautiful about that. Huh? It's like beautiful. Yeah, tell me what you say. Uh, because he's like, well, to know something is to find yourself in it. Yeah. And for it to yeah. find itself in you. I mean, there's like some kind of beautiful yeah. cross. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to know, well, yeah, let, let's let's go a little bit deeper into that. Um, see, I think he's he's getting at the question of the truth. Yeah. Is there such a thing as the truth? Uh, so he's transcending a skepticism and yeah, yeah. So if there is such a thing. And ultimately, he's like suggesting absolute truth, the truth, which is another question that well, we can, we don't have to accept that idea necessarily. But see, I think he's saying if we acknowledge that there is such a thing as the truth, we can begin the organization of fields of knowing. Yes. Be it, you know, in the Du Bois in case, let's say sociology, the Philadelphia Negro. Mm -hmm. Can we know the truth about this condition? And if we can, let's organize our methods and our empirical research and so on into a field of knowledge that we will call sociology. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, that's the way I'm understanding um, Hegel at this point. Mm -hmm. I think he's making a robust argument that there is truth and we can know the truth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's all I would say here. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I was, I mean, when he says the, the well, I agree. Like, in mm -hmm. other words, mm -hmm. he's saying, like, the other thing I was thinking about is, like, okay, well, if the truth is this last chapter, why don't we just begin and we're like, mm -hmm. done, we got it. Mm -hmm. Okay, great, we can move on to another mm -hmm. word. Because he's saying the, the truth becomes, and so it's a process getting to it. Absolutely. And so what's behind almost all scientists might be like, I might not know literally the absolute at this moment, but that it's possible. Absolutely. And then so Absolutely. he is almost saying, like, to everyone reading this, trust me. <laughs> right? Try like I'm gonna walk through it, but I can't tell you everything right mm -hmm. now because it's not like a thing. Mm -hmm. It's something that you have to come to mm -hmm. in thinking about it right. in that sense. Yes. Right. Because he goes after like, you know, people just want to be like, well, this is the truth, and I can tell you on the first page because mm -hmm. the truth has to become mm -hmm. it's a process. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was saying the finding, because it's right. In other words, in finding, like mm -hmm. It, it's the standard thing. Like, how do I know what I'm seeing is the real thing? Mm -hmm. I think Hegel says, look, if you watch an app, if you put food in front of an animal, it will like instantly grab it. Mm -hmm. And he goes, that's a proof of the fact that there's a skepticism to mm -hmm. our senses that I don't know, like, mm -hmm. am I hallucinating or am I dreaming or something mm -hmm. like that? And so I'll just grab it. So with the absolute, it's the self-certainty because you're the subject is finding itself in the object and knows it to be the case because it knows itself. And so this is actually even going beyond the dualism of the subject and object. This is very interesting because you see this gets oh, that's why it's beautiful. It's like truth is good and beautiful, and it's all of these things, right? You know, the, yeah. the philosophical questions, truth mm -hmm. beautiful and good. Mm -hmm. They're all cool. I mean, he's going to talk about them at the end. He's going to talk mm -hmm. about the good, the true, and the beautiful, and they're arriving in the absolute. Mm 
-hmm. And creativity is going to talk about creativity mm -hmm. at the end. Yeah. He's going to say to know the creative power yeah. and everything like that. I don't know. I don't want to spoil it, but yeah. it's also no, no, like no, no, there's no, like no, a whole. No, no, no. But actually, Abel just said I can't spoil it. Yeah. yeah. Right? In other words, like this is the journey to go on, and it's a beautiful journey. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, I kind of felt like he was, like I said, when we first kind of started reading Hegel, like he was like a teacher or whatever, and he's like crazy, but like you want to listen to what he has to say. No, it's just you go to class and you can imagine like a teacher who's like super smart or whatever, but it's just in your school for whatever reason. But anyway, it just feels that something like that is contemporary, even though he's long dead um but also i just think it's kind of crazy that Karl marx and hegel like that i don't know why that hit me right now but that's just an interesting since it was kind of crazy Karl marx and, and you know i mean just kind of similar to what we're referring to about i mean different ideas about ascending to the concrete the absolute universal and the concrete universal um, but then just this, you know, Du Bois, Lenin, um, there's just, I just think it's interesting that they, the, I don't know, this is thinking, to be able to think in a progressive sense. Um, you these, um, you need these people, but it's like, there's a, there's like an understanding of Karl Marx that, you know, they, argued with Hegel because of the idealism thing or whatever, but, um, and then there's the socialist kind of like way you can take Karl Marx and Hegel maybe, um, but I, I do appreciate us appreciating and reading Hegel. That makes me think of how important thinkers are, but also that, both Karl Marx and Hegel really aren't left to certain dogmatic leftism or something like that, but it can still be used um, in the same sense that King had read these people and so on. But well, I, yeah, I mean, that's I just been striking me reading Hegel. Just it really, I mean, and the thread between Hegel, Du Bois, Lenin, Marx, but. Just this idea of like knowledge from below, not or just knowledge belonging to everybody, um, and the true nature of existence coming from people with realities, which is so the opposite of everything. Even Marxists today, they will they, they will they don't care about people's realities. It doesn't follow their rules or their prescriptions or what they think uh, it should be. But this idea that I mean, even the way we talk about people's experiences, we talk about the experiences of young people. Even this idea of the people, knowledge and truth coming from the people, it's all related to this tradition of thinking about the world and the truth. Um, and you really see the, the degradation of thought in our times because we don't have these thinkers. Mm, yeah. But, I mean, just to be in dialogue with that, because the truth is so important to be able to think about it and to know about it. As in, like, to be in a headspace in which that you can think. Mm -hmm. I think that's really sacred and needs to be kept safe. Mm -hmm. But it's not something uh, that is protected. Um, not as in like it just 
needs to be protected. Education isn't just solely the school, but it is the kind of life world that exists for a person. And it needs to be, it's something that, it means that you have to cultivate humanity. You have to be in a situation mm -hmm. or a culture that cultivates humanity. Mm -hmm. um, but that's also something I think that the free school is struggling against because we're not in a certain time that cultivates people um, in that way. But the mm -hmm. truth is, it is important to strive to know mm -hmm. because like Derek says, to stay young. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like you were also saying about the aging of like the soul. Yes. At this time, this, this is something that young, not just young people, but that human beings need to survive because we really won't without yeah. it. We really won't. But I think Meghna and Serafina mostly covered it, but yeah, I was also going to talk about, this reminded me of the conversation we were having earlier about young people and their pe pessimism. I also feel like, you know, universities, colleges, they've become like a breeding ground for mediocrity, yeah. mediocrity of thought, you know. And I feel like if these people, young people were challenged more, yeah. you know, just because I've taught undergrads and it was a shock for me to teach undergrads here because they're almost encouraged not to apply themselves wow. in, intellectually, you know, just have things handed to them and so on. And um, I, this is in the sciences. That's all I can. I don't know about, but it just feels like I, I do think there is a lot of potential and everybody has the capacity to be really deep thinkers. But the places where people go to to get that inspiration to be your best self, you know, the best version, mm -hmm. they just like you know treat you so badly, so unkindly, so they just like put put you down and mm -hmm. yeah and yeah. I just wanted to say something to that because it does seem like we're in a different kind of epoch, like time zone. Because like um, when we no seriously because yes. when like both the boys are like Bob and his king. When either if they were in school or even like people like Aristotle, like they moved the systems in which human beings understood things and how things work. But it's like right now, it just seems very difficult to move how people understand. Like it's like everything is real, what it is is how things have been and how it will work. But my question is like, why? <laughs> why is it like? Why? No, but it doesn't make sense. It's not yeah. logical because it's it's like how many babies are being produced, but there isn't nothing productive in which or nothing really that has changed since. And this is because also um, anti-communism, anti-peace movement, anti-king, anti-divorce. You take everybody out, so you can't really talk about what has also changed thought so you go to a different um kind of place where only and i can't really name names all the way because there's different ideologies yeah. in postmodernism that define who is important and why they're important yeah. so i can't say because i'm not in school right now but um but, but just to say like so it's like double fold. You, you know, you kind of like erase those who have 
change the thinking or also lose the sight and implant a new one. But you are, it's like you, you are still, but what am I trying to say? But they have also done so much, I guess, is where I'm at. Um, but yeah. That just reminds me of the Marianne Williamson event because, well, it's also connected to her book because the thing I liked about seeing Marianne Williamson speak is that you could tell how disappointed she was in that you can see it. Like the questions that were asked, you could tell how disappointed she was that these are supposed to be the creme de la creme of like the next generation of leaders. And and they're actually, yeah, they're, I mean, I'm sorry, but like, yeah, they're pretty, the questions were just not or mediocre. And like, the immediate reaction, because Mary Elizabeth's whole speech is about talking about how the American Revolution needs to be remembered. Because yes, the founding fathers were slaveholders, but that America was a country based on, at that point, the most enlightened ideas yes. in that moment in history. And it was incomplete, but she said, King, as well as she said, like in world history, the two most important revolutions in the 20th century was civil rights movement and the Indian, Indian anti colonial movement. This is Marion Williams. The what? Seraphine, uh, um, you know, just seeing her, right? 
and how my, her inspiration to me is like the age of innocence, right? Is <laughs> sometimes you can't you can't corrupt innocence when they use the word of critique of pure reason, right? And general, you know, purity is something that's at stake here. You know, it's not because everyone's pure like that, like, but you have to think about impurities and how the person used the word pure. But innocence is something that that students used to learn about. Like Aristotle, Alexander is like the, the purity of the age of youth. Everyone wanted to emulate him. We're not, in the, he's not in all of our conversation, but for something that I had to read about, I had to read about things like that. Because, because you're trying to figure, where do I lie at in this, in this you know, in my youthful years, and, and if my models ain't in front of me, people that I emulated, the things I learned about other human beings. And um, so, so when you see somebody that's real young and they, they're, they're not in conflict with the world, they're just trying to understand the, the critique of pure reasons. Like, I'm trying to understand what's my place in the world then. But, but my innocence ain't gonna allow me to, to profane the world because I'm upset. I don't wanna cuss everybody out every day because something's going on. I wanted, I wanted to know, can I learn something about Alexander that I didn't know about in years of my life? Because if I didn't have y'all as company, I had to find books and read about people totally estranged from our environment. But it didn't estrange me. I tried to find some consolation because I can't just go on every day and I have um, fraternal friends with people. And if it takes a lot of effort, I'm, I'm, I'm presenting my human effort, but I'm, I'm confronting myself like my mirror, my mirror with Sarah Prina that I'm, I have asked the same thing. And then, then the things that the, I asked about, people started to come like you, Tony, I had to be him, but people started coming forward. And I was like, there's something going on. And, I'm, and it's not magical. I'm just saying reality of finding about the bogus is real for me. And, 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 and the, for people to walk and others footsteps. So when I see, when I met each of y'all, y'all are walking in front of me, coming to me as though y'all was walking in the footprints of great people that I have studied beautiful human beings. <laughs> and, 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 and the social characteristics is like to critique the pure reason, like because critique, but the pure part of reason, what's that all about? That's the, for me, that's, the, that's something that you go someplace and you walk in the temple and they say, well, they just purified the place. <laughs> well, they had to purify our church. Human beings got to go through that kind of periodic change. But we, but we don't, but I don't want to be upset because I'm saying this to y'all, but it, it, it makes you feel embarrassed to say, I'm innocent in this big murder in case here. I don't want to be on the side of the murderers. And then also, like, in a moment of transition, how come people can't, like, move or Reconcile. say anything about things? Like, Reconcile. This is, like, could you just say that one more time? In a moment of transition, like, why can't people? Why can't young people be? It's not just see it, but make something of the transition in themselves and also an impact in the world. But y'all, but y'all, y'all are like, y'all making it. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Wait, hold on. did you make your point? It, not exactly because I don't think it is no, no, it, 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 it's because to like make it innovation in science would mean that like the third graders will have to learn the innovation mm -hmm. and then yeah. also yeah, be able yeah. to you know make 
it work or like do whatever exactly. to make the function happen. Um, but what that also means is that society would have to change um, in different levels in work and in Everything. culture and things like that. But if there isn't that innovation or isn't that creative development, Mm -hmm. um either since king or whatever you want to say mm -hmm. um it's to say that the problem of clamping down knowledge mm -hmm. is the is, is i want to say it's a problem of problems but that also doesn't describe oh like because it's a it's if you're degrading and dehumanizing no. And you're not being able to make human beings work for a society mm -hmm. um, in a productive sense. But if you want to control people, like of course that will work, yeah. but then it doesn't. It's a catastrophe. It's, it just is chaos. Yeah, chaos. It just is chaos. But then there's the uncaused causes, so you never know what people are going to do. That's right. But, <laughs> but the thing about it, never, I'm sorry. No, no it's true. <laughs> so you don't know really if it's in school. You know what I'm saying? In that, in that, in that. But it's just to say the importance of knowing um, is to be able to innovate. We need to continue to be able to innovate, innovate, innovate yeah. and create because then we can be human beings in society and make society. Um, but let me just let Emil come in and then there. Yes, I mean, I, I think of the question why is it that we, we as people in society haven't, haven't had these discussions or questions? In, in our modern context and it's from my understanding it's you know a a ruling establishment that's dictating what it is to be considered what is true and what is not and it really fundamentally i think gets to this idea that people aren't the problem mm -hmm. when you're taught in school what you need to do is getting from point a to point b so you can get beyond people and get ahead of people you can get your own freedom from majority of people but as we've talked about we think that people are attached to the truth and so while this, this plan that these folks have seems uh, unsurmountable, they, they, they're just as much detached from this truth because they themselves are detached from people. Mm -hmm. They can build these weapons of destruction. Problem is people are gonna have to do what they want them to do. And people have their own mind and can think their own way they wanna think. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it really makes me think of something. I think, I think Emily, I think you posted this on Facebook. It was a Diane Nash talk. Yeah. And she was talking about this concept of agopic energy and how to harness agopic oh, wow. energy and, and love for mankind and, and trying to get people to, to, to think in unity in, in unifying ways. And she said the very first principle, the very first principle you need to understand is that people are not the problem. Mm -hmm. That without that, you're not going to get very far. Mm -hmm. um, and it really speaks to the moment because really we're taught in so many different ways from above that people are the problem, just get away from them, you know, and this is truth. This is, you know, uh, the essence of where we're going. So that's. Uh, well, I mean, just going off of that, I think the, what Hegel is talking about here of the process of truth becoming, I guess. Um, yeah, it also reminded me of civil rights movement and um, the, yeah, the almost like you could say like the science of like nonviolence. And um, yeah, I was just reflecting on 
when a few of us went to Nashville and heard and watched and witnessed some of the what you know what it meant to to participate in the the sit-ins in Nashville and mm -hmm. um I don't know if this is exactly what Hale had in mind per se when he was talking about absolute knowledge or self, like absolute self-consciousness. Mm -hmm. But to me, it feels like a realization of what Hegel was talking mm -hmm. about, of absolute knowledge, not, not only of yourself, but also of like the society that you live in, of humankind, of, you know, the absolute best and worst of what human beings can be like was like it was realized I think through the like through the nonviolent campaigns and like through the cities and all that like I don't know I, I just feel like what Hegel is referring to here what he's moving towards that is what was part of the the practice of like how this the students and the students like the consciousness that they were able to come to through that like almost like the kind of encounter that that he's talking about i'm not yeah i'm not exactly sure if this is what he was actually referring to or like what he would have identified as that but i just think it was not just yeah like or that it like the the kind of the knowledge that was gained and like the truth that was gained through the civil rights movement was like much broader i think than we account for like it was a knowledge of like what are the principles on which the society can be based and also how can the people themselves yeah. govern that society and yeah. um, be part of changing it like all of that it, i think was like that was the truth that was like the absolute self-knowledge that was gained through that struggle um yeah that, that was just sort of bouncing off of what, what I was no, because it's like what happens when people ordinary people take ideas um seriously and struggle for the right ideas um yeah. I think that's the same I just say one thing I mean building off of what you were saying you know it seems and all of you all were saying that now it comes becomes clear that the black freedom movement of that period is a precondition mm -hmm. for, the, for the radical transformation mm -hmm. of society mm -hmm. I, I agree with you know and so in that sense it is the subject coming well, in the Hegelian sense, uh -huh. uniting with the larger subject. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say the object, mm -hmm. but the subject. And this is what I get from Diane Nash. Mm -hmm. My coming to grips with the fact that I am a part of a larger subject, yes. which is humanity itself. Yes. Yes. I don't know that Hegel would have understood that 
in this way. Yeah. I, I agree with you yeah. that it, it, it does suggest through practice another level of consciousness is achieved. Mm -hmm. And I would even say out of the throes of a double consciousness. Mm -hmm. You know, because indeed, you know, all of these activists are black and hence, you know, see the world in twos, as Du Bois suggests. But from that, a larger subject, a consciousness that it's not just me. Right. Is I'm a part of a larger subject. Yeah. And this is, it seems to me, is what Diane Nash holds on to for all these years and repeats it again and again. Uh, I've, I've been to the University of Zurich, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not by chance, I'm visiting Germany, but the whole thing about the things that I think about. And I could, you, I would use the word Asia in a sense I gotta really think about. It. But for me, traveling to Zurich and going through those doors and being with this kind of generation that I came through, coming up with, it was like I was around people. I was in conversations with nuclear people. Think about in in India, and but I was in Germany because I, sometimes I had to. Is that going to go to Germany and really do this research like this? You can. I have the notes. But once I got to Germany to visit my brother, I'm I'm headed to Switzerland. I'm going to go to the University of Zurich, but it's but it's a, a big um, exposition going on when I go to you. Mm -hmm. And me and my baby sister with me. But anyway, it's just what we're talking about. You don't think that this atmosphere will travel with you, like y'all come from India. Everybody, it's a certain atmosphere of learning that I have to have had. To, to survive in this kind of like stuff going on in this country here. If, if, if for, for the innocence, the way Serafina says it, sometimes you think I'm confronted with this. It's not like you, you, you're saying you ain't confronted because some people act like they ain't going to confront not one page of it. Yeah. Where you have got the whole Hegel yeah. book and you want to untie the whole thing, like I'm going to do something right now. I want our people to do something right now. And I, and I feel for Tony in, this, in my aspirations because, because I have to meet other students in real life context that have someone that has the common basis of like this kind of way that the age of innocence still got to meet people who move through their innocence to learn, to be in the academy, to have your um, dedications realized. You can't just have undedicated um, stuff unrealized. You got to have dedication with self-actualization. You got to be able to realize I'm involved in this. Okay, I'm not. I'm not one of those persons that zip myself out of this service. I'm involved in, I'm involved in this. And, John Dunn. Yeah, and, and all this, uh, this morning I said Tony gonna be walking to the school. He's gonna be the first one there. You know, this is a real. This is a real life challenge for all y'all. And not because y'all age. This is so. Can I just say something? I'm, I'm loving. This is very beautiful what you just said. But it, it, it's John Dunn. No man is an island. You know, each man. I, you know, because I'm a part of the whole. This is so. But see, this is. I, I love Jerry's life. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry, this is this is this is, this is. I guess we're ending without ending as much as we wanted to get done today. But. Uh, you know, this idea that, and it is Hegelian in a sense, it is King's 
appropriation of Hegel, the phenomenology, that the self coming to terms with itself in the larger self. And, and this, and I agree with you, Seraphina, so much that this separation, this separation of people from this, which is so natural to them, is, well, the definition of tragedy. You know, yes. the definition of human tragedy. Yes, it is. You know, and um, so I guess as we read, I, I guess now as we go forward, we're reading in a certain sense in the framework, we have to consider the tragedy of the moment. Mm -hmm. Yes, without being, I think, consumed by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it, 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 creative non-conformist. Yeah, creative. <laughs> what was it? Creative non-conformist? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it seems it's so interesting that we read Hegel through what we have been reading. Yeah. Yeah. That is Du Bois and oh, King and, you know. King even has this courage called Uncle Hope. He talks about non-being and then the courage to be. Yeah. Ooh, oh, <laughs> He literally says he's like the worst thing. Yeah. The worst thing is like he calls it the terror of non-being. Wow. So the worst thing is terror. The worst thing to happen is non-being. Yeah, it's like the the urge to withdraw from the world, but then there's also one tendency which is to fight the world, yeah. which is yeah. kind of like the negative approach. Mm -hmm. But you're not really one with the world. No, right? the yeah. Yeah. Like wow. when when a people or a person when you face your unfulfilled hopes, just disappointments yeah. in life, the tragedy. Of life. There's two there's two ways to embody hate. Some people they fight it, they they fight externally, they act out. And then the second form of hate he calls the most devastating form, which is um which he calls disinterest, because you die inside. Wow. It's complete indifference. You don't hate, you don't love, it's indifference. And that's what you would describe as off. The word might not be nihilism, but it's indifference. And then he says that the third path which we have to take is the he calls it the creative will. Yeah. The creative will that you see in history, that you see in like the history of the Black worker in that tradition that gives you the courage to be. But it was interesting when we were talking about non-being and like being and non-being, things like that. I feel like King has a lot of that language as well. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a moral choice. Yeah. Y'all are real kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, the question of moral choice, you know, I often try to flip it and say, the choice to be moral, mm. because you know, um, the moral choice is almost ex externalizing mm. morality. Mm. The, the question is, will I be moral? Will I be principled? You know, which is the dialectic. Because I'm sorry, well, John. I mean, tying it again to this, because I uh, uh, the text which I I want to. Make sure I kind of understand before we wrap up. <laughs> but what you were saying, you know, based on what you're saying, I mean, my understanding of the first paragraph, the last paragraph on 28, basically, is 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 an argument for the necessity of science, right? That we can argue what is science, we can come up with definitions, but first there has to be the agreement on the necessity of science, which I think is very much in line with what we're trying to do preschool, the importance of science, revolutionary science. But then the 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 first complete short paragraph on page 29, 
Um, yeah, that one, the, the, the last sentence there, where he's referring to phenomenology of spirit, and then but he says, absolute knowledge is the truth of all the modes of consciousness, because as the course of the phenomenology brought out, it is only an absolute knowledge that the separation of the subject matter from the certainty of itself is completely resolved. Truth has become equal to certainty, and this certainty to truth. So I'm just thinking about that. I mean, in uh, I I don't know how. I mean, just if I'm correct in understanding it, or what I'm what I'm thinking at least getting out of it is this uh, uh, idea of science, and then the struggle, the striving towards absolute knowledge and the truth, combining all modes of consciousness. And that's, that's the problem, right? I think in Hegel, and I think. When there are critiques of Hegel, it is in this on this concept of absolute knowledge. Mm -hmm. oh, well, right, absolute. Yeah, uh, final. Okay. Um, knowledge. It can it can become. <laughs> I would I would treat absolute as more like the goal. Of, that's why I tried to put it earlier. It's more beautiful that you're finding yourself because yeah, yeah. the truth becomes as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. Right. But isn't even Marx and uh, would would they would critique Hegel? But they're critiquing the young Hegelians. Well, they critique because to quote Engels, Hegel makes the absolute knowledge into absolutely nothing. Like it doesn't tell you anything, and they try to treat well, it as if it's yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, it's the conversation. No, I just didn't think I thought that was Wittgenstein. You know, Wittgenstein. I don't know if this is way off mark, but two like two paragraphs down from where we ended, mm -hmm. he ends with talking about God. He likes so Hegel likes to quote a passage in the Bible when yes. Jesus Christ says, I come to I represent truth, mm -hmm. and Pontius Pilate says, What truth? like kind of sarcastically, yeah. mm -hmm. meaning he's saying that I'm with Christ, I'm with the fact that we can know the truth. And so God is the truth there for him. So yes, maybe the finality of truth is like becomes a problem, but it's simply him saying that we can know the truth. And that's well, what's well, see, and that's the, but if I might say, yes, but. Okay. Sure. And leave, you know, because now when we get to quantum mechanics okay. and modern yeah. sociology, yeah. you see what I'm saying? It, it's, you have to keep the process going. <laughs> And even the method, and, and Hegel is so very good on this, that logic must uh, reflect the content of logic, which... No, sorry. What, what, 
No, no, I'm just saying. So go ahead. Well, let's start from where we ended. I yeah, hope Danny, you come it. back. Okay, yeah. No, don't feel, don't make yourself yeah, a stranger yeah. in this house, man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited for next week. The next paragraph is really cool. Yeah. Do it once, do one to two pages each time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you need it. Better than one to two paragraphs. You can't speak through it. Can't speak through it. Yeah. 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 Yeah.